You're listening to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, recorded August 12th, 2020. Scaling the game, when hard games get easier over time and with experience. Our 102nd episode, also Telestration Upside Drawn, the PIP System Core Book, and more. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 102, Scaling the Game, when hard games get easier over time and with experience. I'm Sean, and with me here, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Moti. I am the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, the RPG maitre d', answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to welcome everyone in the lobby here on Twitch. You can join us Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. All right, tonight we've got a rather interesting topic from one of our Patreon patrons about how the more games and types of games you play, the easier all games seem to become. I'll also be taking a detailed look at two games in our game room segment. Uh, Up first is going to be Telestrations Upside Drawn from the Op. And second, an RPG core book, the PIP System core book from Third Eye Games. Finally, in our Bellhops tabletop, I've got my first plays of two games off the pile of obligation. I've got Roll for Lasers and Breakdancing Meeple. As well, I'll be talking a bit more about Talisman Batman Supervillain Edition and a little bit more about Telestrations Upside Drawn. We love interacting with listeners and viewers. Each week, we're going to highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. We'll share some feedback we've received, comments on our content, and maybe some gaming discussions we've been part of. We want to share what people are saying, both positive and negative. We appreciate your comments and suggestions, and if you'd like to let us know something about the show, you can send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. All right. You can also hit us up on social media. I can be found everywhere as tabletopbellhop, one word. And I can be found as Dark Elf LX. Up first, we comment we had missed on one of our Gloomhaven actual play YouTube videos. Rage Badger Gaming writes, Surprised I just found your channel, given I'm a huge fan of Gloomhaven, obviously. I see I've got some catching up to do from your Gloomhaven playthrough playlist. Well, I'm glad you found us, uh, Rage Badger. Uh, this was something, if you have a YouTube channel, make sure you go to studio mode and click on comments because we had a whole bunch of comments that were in this list of stuff you hadn't responded to that I never got notifications on. So it's worth doing. I did see one of the other popular podcasters the other day noticing they had comments from three years ago that they hadn't even seen. So that's definitely something I don't, I don't know. It's I, I always expect to get the notification in my email. Realize YouTube doesn't always notify you on everything. So it's worth checking that out. Now, Rage Badger finding us on YouTube and being surprised it took so long is why uh, we are always asking people to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Because unfortunately, getting noticed on YouTube is hard. And the best way to get noticed is for people to actually interact with our channel. Whether that's hitting the subscribe button, dinging that bell to get notifications turned on, even giving a thumbs up on our videos, or commenting on them. We do appreciate everyone who takes the time to do these things, as they are pretty much the only way our contents will get seen by new eyes. Well, Dave Higgins has a comment on our topic of why do people play games. Dave says, I play for two reasons, depending on the game. One, enjoyment of the experience. Some games have fun story mechanic, etc. And so playing that specific game. So enjoy, I enjoy playing that specific game. Or two, because the people I am socializing with want to play a game. 
I don't need to be doing something to justify spending time with friends, but some of my friends prefer to have a reason for meeting up, so I play because I don't want to not I don't want not to play. Fair enough. Well, thanks for the comment, Dave. Uh, both very valid reasons to play games. Now, personally, I don't think I need to be doing something to justify hanging out with friends, but if I'm going to be hanging out with friends, why not do something? And for me, I would prefer that something was playing games, most of the time at least. Well, a quick comment from Hungry Gamer on our Quad Heroes review. Sounds cool. Well, thanks, Hungry Gamer. Now, Code Dub had this to say about our Bastille review. Very interesting. It sounds like a game I would like, but I hadn't heard about it until I saw it on your Instagram. Well, thanks for the comment, Code. See, these are the comments that make it all worth it. I love it when I find out that I help someone discover a new game. That's a big part of why we're here week after week. Well, up next, a comment from Board Games Are Fun on our Katana review. Tabletop Bellhop, this was super helpful. I own it, but have never played it because of the opaque rules. But I think I get it now. Maybe, but likely not. <laughs> well, I'm glad to say we're, we're not the only ones who had a hard time figuring out this game uh, from the rules provided in the box. So I'm glad that maybe I helped you get a game to the table that might not have hit the table otherwise. Well, up next, a couple of comments on our Shadowrun 6th World Beginner Box review from last week. First, Martin Voss says, Is this box better written and edited than the core rules? It's probably worth noting that the 6th edition is very controversial. Many Shadowrun fans consider it unplayable. The core rulebook was very poorly written and riddled with errors. Some of the features you mention as new already existed in older editions, including Edge, but Edge changed a lot. It's not that people don't like Edge, it's that they don't like Edge-replaced armor. And Jeff Zeus wrote, Finally, a chance to check this out. Uh, finally had a chance to check this one out. Thanks for the shout-out, Mo. I definitely wish I was in chat for this one, and I'll be checking out more with the Glitch Edge system. Well, thanks, Jeff. I thought you'd appreciate the story game elements that are showing up in such a traditional game as Shadowrun. Now, jumping back to Martin's comments, I have no clue if this is better or worse than the core rules. I don't own them and I haven't read them. Sounds like they're rough, but I did notice something last week Sean had brought up some complaints about the beginner box about misprints, and I didn't have them in my copy, so it is possible that the rulebook may be on a second printing as well. But again, don't own it, haven't read it, couldn't answer. Now, as for Edge, see... In previous editions, Edge, to me, reminds me of Fate Points and Warhammer. It was one of those things you got at the beginning when you make your character, and only really earned at the end of adventures. Like, at the end of campaigns, they were a big deal. And they let you break the rules, like making automatic successes or saving yourself from death. Whereas Edge now is more of a spendable resource. It's, it reminds me more of Fate Points and Bennies and other modern games, where it's something that, that comes up, it is earned and used in every conflict. Like, the flow of Edge is a big part of the game. So to me, that's a complete new concept and a new thing for Shadowrun. And to be honest, they probably shouldn't have called it the same thing. Like, like it's so different from the original use of Edge that it's a, it's a new mechanic to me. But I do get, yes, the term Edge has existed in Shadowrun for a long time. So I do apologize if there was any confusion there. Well, finally, our guy in the chair happened to notice that we had new Gloomhaven comment tent out and took the time to write about our Jaws of the Lion unboxing. About the new battle goals... Those were developed with the help of a small community on BGG. They published Satire's Extended Battle Goals as a fan project for Gloomhaven, and Isaac worked with them to adapt some of their battle goals for Jaws of the Lion. Well, that's very cool to know, Tabujan. I'm looking forward to see you in our chat on Friday when we return to live streaming Gloomhaven. Uh, this time we're going to be starting off a two-player campaign of Jaws of the Lion, just Deanna and I playing. 
Well, that's it for this week's comments. Thank you to everyone who shares, comments, and interacts with our content. A few quick announcements before we continue. This is that point in every video where we say, like, subscribe, hit the bell, and all that. Sadly, despite how often we say it, a lot of people still don't subscribe. So here I am talking about it again. And we're going to bring this up every week. As I mentioned earlier, it's not just YouTube. The best way to get noticed on any social media platform is for people to interact with your comment. And we do thank those of you who do take your time to do so. Sign up to receive Tabletop Bellhop weekly in your inbox. It's another one we're going to repeat every week because we love having new subscribers because this is the best way to keep track of all the stuff we put out every week. We release con new content pretty much on a daily basis nowadays, and it's a great way to get a refresher on what we released the week previous. You can sign up by going to tabletopbellhop.com and subscribe right there on the sideboard or sidebar or go over to newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com. All right, it's time to announce our 100th episode giveaway winners. The first winner is going to get a choice of a copy of either The Alpha or Dead Man's Cabal. The runner-up gets the other game. Drum roll, please. The number one winner is Eric S. from the United States. And the runner-up is Jennifer L., also from the U.S. Well, we've now emailed Eric, and we're waiting to know which of the two games they want before we email Jennifer with her prize. And just a note, if something falls through here where uh, I'm not able to get back to get in touch with people where uh, I've already confirmed that their entries were valid, so we're good there. But if there's any reason we don't hear from Jennifer in probably about two weeks time, we will draw another name. Now, speaking of giveaways, we got another one uh, that's still going strong right over on the page on the Web page. That's our two-year anniversary giveaway of a Kickstarter edition of Gorinto in partnership with Mark and Grand Gamers Guild. Now, this giveaway is also open to the U.S. and Canada, and at this point, you got about two weeks left to enter. As of yesterday, Grand Gamers Guild's latest Kickstarter is now live. This is for Endangered New Species, an expansion for their popular Endangered game that also includes a backer level for people who don't have the base game. Now, with that... Kickstarter now live. It was delayed a bit, about a week. We have entered a new way to enter our Garinto contest. So even if you've been there, if you've already entered to, uh, to win a copy of Garinto, head back over there because there should be one new way to enter. And all you got to do is check out the Kickstarter page for a bonus two entries. Well, the last Wednesday of this month, we're going to try something new instead of our usual AMA live Q&A with our chat room. All right. We are going to try to host a review of Palooza. Uh, this special episode, we're going to break from our usual format to present you a super review-filled episode. I'm looking to give my opinion on six different games that week. It'll be a mix of board games and RPGs, some detailed reviews, and some short and sweet ones. Now, this is being done for a couple of reasons. One, to try and catch up on some games from the pile of obligation. And two, to try out this new format to see how popular it is. Now... If people do review, do enjoy this review-heavy show, we may look at doing one of these every other month. Uh, at this time, we're currently, we were planning to do AMAs every month, but we'll drop those down to bi-monthly, so we'll alternate. We'll have a review of Palooza, then an AMA, then a review of Palooza each month. Well, our AMAs do pretty well. It does seem like we've been struggling to get questions for them, so spacing them out a little further makes sense. So be sure to join us for our first review of Palooza on the 26th of August. We love people who drop in and take part in our chat room, The Lobby. If you're here live, remember to stick around as we continue the show after the double bell with more chat and content that otherwise only our patrons. Interesting to note, uh, Board Game Arena just got Yokohama. Ooh, that's a good one. 
That's one that we were sitting with Deanna the other night on um, one of our, our date night gaming nights, and we were looking at games on the shelf, and there are a lot she hasn't played, which mainly goes back to before my mom moved in, she would end up having to stay home with the kids when I'd go out to the game nights, and I'd played quite a few games she never got to play. And that was one of the ones I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe you missed that. And we were looking at Yido as another one. Yokohama is a solid one. Yeah, there's actually, um, BGA's uh, just had their anniversary and, and uh, are talking about adding a whole lot of new games oh, nice. in the coming weeks. So uh, for those people who, uh, who do like BGA and, and playing their, some board games online when they can't play in person, uh, keep an eye on the news over there and, and see what's happening. I need to get back into playing more regularly. I, I like log in once a day because it's when I'm checking my email, I get like 20 notifications of me being out of time. And I'm like, all right, all right, I'll take my one move in each game. At some point, I need to sit down and actually like start playing some games again and try out some of the new stuff. Like there's a lot that I haven't tried. Um, the one you were rally, rally man GT that you've talked yep. about. I really want to check out. And then there's, there was something else. And there's but... actually another racing game that just dropped last the last new one they dropped, uh, down, Downforce? Downforce. That's supposed to be really good. That's from Restoration Games, the people who are bringing back Dark Tower and who did Unmatched and uh, Return to Fireball Island. I'm actually surprised Eric hasn't jumped me into a game of that one already. <laughs> <laughs> there was something that came out there. I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. And I don't even remember what it was I was all excited about, so uh there's been it was it was it was before downforce it was it was it were before rally man it was oh, a little uh Teotihuacan. yeah teotihuacan that's what it was i'm like yeah. there was something big that like because teotihuacan is a game that i love but it's so fiddly and it's the game i've had the most people take back moves not take back their move but oh i forgot to do this the the right i went here oh wait remember last time when i went there i should have went up on the god track and when i went up on the god track that should have tangled the thing over here and the thing over here should have gave me one point there and that happens every game like i was right. playing in a tournament and and this was happening. It just there's so many little things to keep track of that I I hate saying because I like physical board games, but I've been saying that it Toyota would be better as a video game because it would right. keep track of all that. You would play there and the game would walk you through it. So I was really excited to see that on Board Game Arena, but I've yet to have a chance to start a game. Yep. So as for a topic tonight, this is an interesting one. This is we're going to be pretty much unscripted for most of the night tonight because this is one of those more philosophical questions. We 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 kind of like to mix things up between, you know, just typical game reviews where people are asking us, hey, what's our top five games that feature the color blue and games that are more like philosophical is probably not the right term, but more ephemeral. Not we're not looking for specific games. We're talking about game nights and gaming in general. So we won't be looking for game recommendations from the chat room, but what I would love to hear from the people in the lobby is what they think about the topic as we dive into it in the next segment. We're here to answer your game, gaming, and game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Ask the Bellhop. Uh, social media works too. We're everywhere. It's Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Now, the best way to get questions to us is through that website, through the website, tabletopbellhop.com. Uh, you can still ask me a question anywhere. Hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on Facebook. Me, we, you, me, social, dice. I don't know, Dice Camp plus Pora, Instagram, uh, Pinterest. I don't know. Can you ask people things on Pinterest? Is that even part of that platform? I don't know. But if you can find me on social media, feel free to ask something. This week, we have a question from patron Roger Malosh about power creep, but not the Magic the Gathering kind. He asks, hey, Mo and Sean, I've enjoyed every one of your podcasts and look forward to a new one each week. Nice. I have a question regarding power creep. Not the kind you find in games, but the power creep experienced by players. I always played cards and used to enjoy Risk many moons ago, but I have recently started to play real board games. The first modern board game I tried was Jaipur, 
Then, later at CG Realm, I was introduced to Carcassonne, which really opened my eyes to this new hobby. Somebody then suggested a, a game called Great Western Trail. I had never experienced anything like this. It was all completely new to me. I, to say I was overwhelmed would be an understatement. I managed to muddle my way through the game, but I could smell a few brain cells still, still smoldering when we were done. I remember somebody saying the game was easy before we played it, and I'm sure they really thought it was. Yeah. But I wouldn't call it a gateway game. Of course, now that I've played many different games, I would take a game like Great Western Trail in stride and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. This brings me to my first question. How do you determine if a given player's skill and experience is a good match for a new game they are about to play, given that a player's skill level is very subjective at best? As far as power creep goes, as my skill increases and I look for greater and greater challenges, am I going to lose interest in most of the current games in my collection as I pursue this hobby? Is this a common occurrence? All right. So there's a lot there. I, I got to admit, first off, I love this question. I, lo I love the detail that Robert Roger gave. I like that it's not just a bang quick. What do we do for this? I like it. I like having these longer free freeform questions. Uh, but before diving into the actual questions, I just want to talk about this whole phenomenon. Uh, like he's calling it power creep. I don't know. That's not the term I'd use, though. I don't know. Experience creep or player skill level seems to fit a little better. It's not, it's not the term. Power creep to me makes me think that whenever a new expansion comes out, it's got better versions of things than the originals that makes the stuff in the original no longer worth using, right? Like, that's what I think of when I think of power creeping Well, games. I think I, it kind of makes sense in some ways because when, uh, when you play a new game, that's your expansion, right? You're expanding and your power level is expanding okay. is, is, I think, how he's thinking of it. And, and in that frame, it does make a little sense. It's your power that's creeping up. Fair enough. That works. That works. Your, your power, your experience, it, your comfort level. It's, it's actually, I think, board game comfort level is almost, comfort level creep doesn't fit, though. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, familiarity, <laughs> board game familiar, familiarity yeah. rating with different games and mechanics, possibly. But anyway, this is definitely a thing. This is, this is something that is a huge part of the board game industry. I have to assume always has been and probably always will be because it, it is something you definitely experience. Like when you first experience your first hobby board game, right? Like your first game that's more than just a roll and move where there's actual decision points to be made. You may be managing resources. You may have multiple actions to choose from. Whatever, whatever that first game you're getting introduced to is, is going to like blow your mind, right? And it's going to seem so complicated compared to one of your, like the basic mass market games. Whereas like Monopoly being on the hard end, like there are people who consider Mop Monopoly a difficult game and a hard to learn game. I, I personally don't see it that way, but I played lots of games and I get it that someone who's used to playing one type of game will find another, another definitely more difficult or easier. And this is definitely also true of even, even card games. So that's why I think this has probably been with board gaming all the time. Like even to this day, I am too intimidated to try to learn to play bridge. I have no interest in learning to play bridge. And when I was first learning to play cards, Crazy Eights was pretty simple, but Hearts seemed really complicated and confusing. Sure enough, eventually after losing Hearts, while Spades seemed a lot easier and so on. So I think this is just a common occurrence for anyone who plays any amount of board games who is constantly trying new things. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's definitely uh, uh, more difficult things become easier. Uh, but he, his concern in that second part of his question is whether or not he's going to lose interest in older games and that's where i think it gets uh it gets interesting uh because there's a little of that but uh we'll talk about that a little later 
Yeah, so the, the main thing, I, I just want to talk about the general phenomena. I'll get to his questions. We got he's, he's basically got two questions here. We'll deep dive the questions in a bit. Before we get there, I just want to talk about a couple things. So one of them is weight, right? So one of the things, we have an entire episode on this where we talk about this. But game weight or game complexity, game weight is, a, is something that uh, hobby gamers talk about all the time. I don't know who coined the term game weight or where it started, but games are rated on a weight scale. And we're going to point towards board game geek here which is of course the world's biggest depository of board game information all in one place on the web and somewhere anyone listening to us i'm sure is well familiar with but if you never heard of board game geek it's it's a little intimidating to check out for the first time but worth going to we got an episode on that too but anyway board game geek has a weight scale from one to five for every board game ever published including ones that still aren't published yet and Weight is based on a number of different things from the complexity, the number of decision points, the um, number of options presented, the depth of the rules, how thick the rule book is, how long it takes to play. Like there are a ton of things. Now we're not, I'm not going to get into all that. Again, if you want to know about that, we wrote about that on the blog. That was on um, the article entitled weighing in on complexity. And we talked about this way back in episode 38 of our podcast called a heavy topic, which we'll throw links to both of those, both in the show notes and in the chat room, if we get a chance. So game weight is subjective, always will be because when I play a game for the first time, I am going to base how, well, I'm not base, but the game's going to feel as difficult to me based on my previous experience from other games. So if I played lots of games that are similar to it with similar mechanics, the game's going to seem easy because I've already learned all that stuff in my past. I've learned it in other games. Whereas if I'm playing a game with all kinds of new stuff that I've never seen before, it's going to seem heavy and complicated and brain burning, even though it might not be weighted higher, right? So where weight actually becomes useful to me is in comparing them. So what you need to do here is to pick a game you you personally think is at a certain level. So the example Sean and I have used multiple times on the podcast before is that Race for the Galaxy is a 2.5 on Board Game Geek. So to us, Race for the Galaxy is the perfect middleweight game. So whenever I'm comparing games and people go, is that a heavy game or a lighter game? I look at Race for the Galaxy and I think, hey, is that lighter than Race for the Galaxy or heavier than Race for the Galaxy? And if it's heavier than Race for the Galaxy, I go, yeah, it's on the heavy side. If it's a lot heavier than Race for the Galaxy, I'm like, well, it's a heavy game. Whereas if I'm like, oh, that's so simple compared to Race for the Galaxy, right? Like that's just our benchmark. And that's what I think you need to do is find a benchmark to compare it to. Right. It, it's a lot uh, to take this out of board gaming and sort of give give weight a, a different um, view, uh, you can think about math, right? When you start off with math, you're learning addition and subtraction, multiplication and division, right? And, and even those at the start are pretty difficult, mm -hmm. but once you get those, they're pretty easy. But then you move on to other topics when most of them are just different applications of multiplication and addition and subtraction, but they seem until you understand how to apply them a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. But then by the time you're in grade eight, you're doing square roots and, and exponents without even thinking about them because you've learned how to apply those topics. And then you move into, you know, grade nine, grade 10, and people start throwing, you know, sums at you and, and, and all sorts of algebra and, and calculus. And it gets crazy, even though when you work through it, it's those same first principles over again, just applied in a different way. And eventually those two become a little more natural to you. And now all of a sudden trying to find the slope of a line 
isn't as terrifying as it was the first time someone threw it up on a board for you. Uh, and, and really, that's that whole same weight scale, right? Calculus is a 5.0 and addition is a 1.0. Mm-hmm. And all those steps between those is, is what makes the scale of weight in, in your math problems. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I'm sure it applies to other things like cooking. I'm sure you look at a basic recipe compared to a complex recipe. I don't know. I don't know enough about cooking. I'm at that basic level. You look at like learning to make scrambled eggs when you were a kid the first time. Seems like, oh my God, I have to like heat the pan and I got to worry about how hot the butter is and I got to wait till it's bubbly. Like like, it seems very complicated. Whereas now like scrambled eggs is a small step as part of a bigger meal nowadays. So like I'm sure it applies to almost all things. It's just, it's it's about comfort level and and your, your immersion into the games. I, and really, again, it's uh, to me the the number of basic principles involved uh, is is a, is a good sign, right? If you've got fifteen different mechanics in your board game, that's going to be a heavier game mm-hmm. than a roll and move. <laughs> in general, yeah, yeah. Though it is interesting that every now and then they'll come up with a, a new game that just uses one mechanic really well, and sometimes right. can make that pretty heavy by just using that mechanic in different ways. But again, yeah, you're well, using that mechanic in different ways. Right, it's in that new and new and interesting uh, usage and, and, yeah. and something that's different the, of, of what is technically still a basic concept just applied in a different way. So I, th- I think at this point everyone probably gets the gist, and, and yes, it's normal. This, this is something that affects everyone as they play more games. Unless you keep playing the same game over and over and over again, as long as you're currently exper- constantly experiencing new things in gaming, your gaming level of experience and your point of view is going to broaden. And you're going to find learning new things easier because you're always building on that base. You've, you've learned the addition subtraction. Now you've learned the multiplication. Now you've learned the division. And from that, you can grow. So getting back to the actual questions from Roger. Now, he had two specific different questions, and we're going to talk about these separately. So first off, he asked, how do you determine if a given player's skill and experience is a good match for a new game they're about to play, given that players' skill levels are very subjective? So we've... Again, I'm going to point people back to previous episodes. I guess this is what happens when you hit your two-year anniversary. Is You've already talked about parts of everything we've, already. We've got evergreen content. We, hit, we have evergreen content. So we talked about selecting what games to play in the past. Now, we did have a generic episode. Now, this time I'm not going to bother drinking, dropping links because I don't think it's overly pertinent to this particular topic. But we've talked about just how to pick what to play on game night. And But more specifically, the episode that I think is more interesting is we have talked about trying to pick games that will hook new players. And the both cases for trying to decide what to play is getting to know the players, whether that like interviewing them, basically asking questions, finding out what games they like and what they don't like and finding out their comfort level through knowing which games they're comfortable with. You can then use that to determine what games will be good for uh, either a next step or a next play. Right. It's almost essentially a session zero, uh, even to, you know, in, instead of trying to figure out what role, what you're going to allow and not allow in your role-playing game, you're going to figure out what mechanics they're going to be comfortable with and and where you can sort of push the limits a little bit and, 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 and dig in. You know, maybe they aren't going to feel comfortable with, uh, you know, a power uh, mechan- uh, auction, mm-hmm. but they are... You know, they like magic, so getting that deck builder influence in there is something that they are going to be feel comfortable with. And you might want to go towards Lords of Waterdeep. Yep. So speaking of Lords of Waterdeep, this is this is one that I it, it kind of shocked Ian and I. And this is, a, this is another aspect of it. Okay. I don't know if I want to talk about this first or afterwards. Waterdeep. Let's talk about it now. So another aspect of this is just because 
you feel a game is heavy doesn't mean it's going to be heavy for someone else. And because you think a game is light does not make you better than someone who finds that game difficult, right? So I would hope, and I, I actually know who taught Roger how to play Great Western Trail. I'm glad to know who, who that person wasn't being pedantic. They weren't like, well, this is an easy game. You should have got it. That is not what this topic is about. In this case, your experience level is based on the games you played, and because you played more games than someone else doesn't make you a better person or a better gamer than them. It just makes you a more experienced person or gamer than them. So I just want to get that out of the way, because I'll admit, Deanna and I kind of laughed at this one, because the other day, I shared a deal on Lords of Waterdeep and someone quote tweeted that deal going on about how it's such a great hardcore game. And I'm like, hardcore? Lords of Waterdeep. I have never seen Lords of Waterdeep called hardcore. And I'll admit I had that little snicker, which is bad on me. Really, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be making fun of someone else for having less gaming experience than I am. That's a bad mo. Um, but if that player showed up, to my game night, right? Or to my house or the my game night I'm hosting at the CG Realm or a local game store. There's no way I'm going to then break out Food Chain Magnet or Indonesia or an 18xx game, right? Like, they, they think Lords of Waterdeep's hardcore. I got to watch myself. I'm going to have to look for games that are close in weight or complexity or lighter than Lords of, Deep, Lords of Waterdeep. And, like, say I don't know any off the top of my head. Maybe I'll head over to Board Game Geek and look at the weight scale. Now, Waterdeep is a 2.47, so it's easier than Race for the Galaxy, so I'm not going to show Race for the Galaxy, which immediately I know that. I'm like, if they're having a hard time with Lords of Waterdeep, I am not going to throw a thousand icons at them, which is what adds the complexity. And in, in one of the main things that is a key factor of the complexity of Race for the Galaxy is learning the iconography to learn the game. So I'm going to start looking for games in the low two range, right? I'm going to look for some simpler stuff. Maybe I'm going to, I'm going to look for some, I don't know, a New York 1901 or uh, Niagara as for some just way off the top of my head games. But then instead, if this person came to me and was like, oh, Lords of Waterdeep, that game's way too simple. That, that That's like an intro level worker placement game. Then I'm going to be like, okay, then maybe I'm going to start looking for games in the high two range. But then that gives me even more room. If they thought it was really easy, then I'm like, all right, let, let's let's grab one that's a, quite a bit heavier, but not super heavy, and say, like, hey, have you played Viticulture? Because I'm picking Viticulture here because it's also a worker placement game where you're collecting stuff to trade in later, right? So similar to Lords of Waterdeep in a way. And if they're like, oh, no, I've never tried Viticulture, then bang, here we go. We got our game. I'm going to show them Viticulture. But then if they're like, oh, Viticulture, yeah, that's a solid game. It's okay. But I like heavier games than that. Then I know to keep going up that scale. And now I'm like, well, if they like Viticulture, maybe they'll like Vinhos because Vinhos is a Vital Lacerda masterpiece that it's going to take us four hours to play and we're going to need to, you know, take a nap when we're done, which maybe that's what they're looking for. And it's also interesting because I think there's also other ways that tweet could have been taken um, because, you know, they could be saying, oh, that's hardcore uh, because the way they play Lords of Waterdeep really might focus on the sort of take that aspect True. or hate drafting. And so the way their group plays that specific game could not make it harder, not make it not increase the weight, but make it for them more hardcore because they're a bunch of players who really like digging in on other people and not necessarily, you know, focusing on their own game as much as, as hate drafting and, 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 you know, playing that competitive mm -hmm. nature, uh, which shifts how Lords of Waterdeep can be viewed yep. to that group in the way that they play it. And again, that's a lot of what that comes. Um, and, and again, that comes from how you know each mechanic. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I feel really good playing Pulsar 2048. 
you know, and, and that's not an easy game. I mean, I, I don't know. I have no idea what its weight is on Board Game Geek, but I mean, you know, people, people get scared of it looking at, looking at the way it's, it fills out on the table. There's a lot of moving parts. You can't do anything you, you want to be able to do, but I sit down and I'm probably going to be better at or feel more comfortable and feel better playing Pulsar 2048 than I am going to play at Catan mm. because I don't play Catan. I was never in that, you know, we're going to play Catan all day long, every day for weeks uh, group. I missed that section of the hobby board gaming uh, revolution, essentially, because uh, I was up in Toronto not not playing games. And, and so I find Catan harder in some ways yeah. than the, something that's a heavier, weightier game. Just because those mechanics I don't play with a lot. Yeah, where Pulsar is like a 3.71. Right. That's you know, up it's, there, it's, right? <laughs> yeah, Whereas yeah. Catan, I think, is probably a 1.8-ish, right? Yeah, like, I, that's like a rough that. guess. I didn't look up Catan. But that's definitely but, but, a part of it, right? And it's yeah. all about which styles you played. Now, now another aspect of that interview, right? So instead of just asking, have you played and did you like, what did you like, is another big aspect of it. Yeah. So we, again, <laughs> today is the episode where we talk about past episodes. You're bringing up Catan. We specifically answered the question, what do you, what games do you follow up Catan with? And we actually, I have a blog post about this where I broke it down, uh, actually looking at all the different things people could possibly like about Catan. I don't mean that in a Catan's bad kind of way, like people shouldn't like Catan, but we're like, what do you like about Catan? Is it the trading? If you really like trading with other players, then check out Chinatown, because that's a game all about training. If what you like about Catan is making sure you're placed on the right spot so that when you roll those dice, you get resources, well, then you're going to like any of the dice-based resource generation games like Machi Koro or Shadow Kingdoms of Valeria, right? And I went through all the different, different aspects of Catan that I think people why they play Catan, which for many people is going to be multiples of those, and kind of took those apart and went, well, if you like this aspect of Catan, you'll like this game, and if you like this aspect of Catan, you'll like that game. And it's the same thing here. If what you like in Lords of Waterdeep is the Dungeons & Dragons theme, well, now you're going to start looking at dungeon-crawling games, right? Like the D&D board games and Descent and possibly even as much as Gloomhaven going into, if you want it, like a, a difficulty scale there, or maybe if they want lighter versions, but Dungeon Crawls, you're looking at a classic like Hero Quest or one of the various versions thereof that have been released in the last few years. Same deal with if you're looking at Lords of Waterdeep, what are other things they could like about it? And um, they could be the intrigue of the intrigue deck and backstabbing people. Well, if that's the case, maybe you look into, say, like a Dead of Winter or something. So you've got that story element, which I know Sean doesn't think there's a lot of story in Lords of Waterdeep, but there is some story to Lords of Waterdeep. So you have a story, you have a story going on, uh, but you have this traitor mechanic where someone in the group is betraying, possibly betraying everyone, and everyone has a personal goal that may or may not go with the group, right? So that's another big aspect of recommending games to players. Yeah, I think uh, immersion, uh, and again, I didn't personally feel it in Waterdeep, but I know there are people who are out there, and yeah. I think this group is probably one of those guys, or one of those groups of folk who, who get into Lords of Waterdeep. Yeah. Uh, they may be, you yeah, know, they call it hardcore, D &D, yes. They may be huge D&D &D fans, uh, you know, the, the folks who really get into the novels and, and immersion into the world of Dungeons and & Dragons, and love diving into Lords of Waterdeep in that level where the take that is personal and the hidden traitor aspects and things like that are, are really kind of uh, immersive and make it that hardcore D&D board game that really sinks in for them. Yep, totally fair. So again, if you, like, again, players 
skill and experience is subjective. Well, their experience isn't subjective. I would say that's objective. You can ask them, what games have you played? That that now what they've learned, that's their skill from that experience is definitely subjective. But but I think asking people what have you played, what do you like, find a common ground, find a game that you have in your head a difficulty level set, a, a weight scale, a complexity scale, and then say, okay, what about this? Would you like to play something heavier than that or lighter than that? Right? Or did you find Great Western Trail easy? No? Okay, so you want something simpler than that. Did you find how how did you find you know last week I saw you played this. How how did you think of that? What'd you think about it? Was that easy to learn? Um like for example, at this point in time I remember Roger being there and we played a game of Arkwright. Now, he didn't play, and I remember him watching and him just going, no, no, not for me. And I'm like, I, I'm looking forward to the day when Roger gets to the point where he's going to come to me and say, remember that game you had? I want to play Ark right now. But he's not there yet. And again, one of the things we do need to stress, that because a game's heavier doesn't mean it's better, which is going to lead to our next topic. So this is the other question Roger asked. Am I going to lose interest in most of my current games in my collection as I pursue this hobby? Is that a common occurrence? And I got to say straight up, no. I Not in general, no. That's that's not something that... I Maybe someone has had that happen, but I don't know anyone who's like gone as they've leveled up gaming, thrown out the old stuff. Now, I, I can see there could be instances of this. Um, if you got into some really lighter, fluffier stuff in the beginning, um, I, you know, I, and I, I hate to say this, I feel like I, I harp on this game, but Chocolatiers, right? Chocolatiers, I don't think has the lasting of, uh, ability. And so if that was one of your games that you really got into, I think after a few years when, and once you started playing some harder core games, that one might go away. It might. Um, but that has more to do with the replayability of Chocolatiers than the actual difficulty of Chocolatiers. Um, another, you know, a great example is, um, you know, the Duke, right? I can play the Duke with my son, um, and he may not be the best example because he's actually pretty good at the <laughs> game and beats me. Uh, but that's going to be a different experience than going down to Windsor and playing Mo in the Duke, right? Because of the relative experience of my opponents. Mm -hmm. The game hasn't changed, but the level of opponent has changed and, and what you need to do and what you need to put into that game is going to be different than playing with a more beginner op op opponent. And now if you have a partner that you're playing games with at home, you're probably both going to be growing at that same level. Mm -hmm. So that same game you have in front of you is evolving with you and, and what you put into and get out of that game change. Yes, I can see it happening for for some people. In general, though, I haven't experienced it. Like, like it's just not one of those things. Like, I can see how, in theory, it's, it seems like that might happen. Like, there are definitely games I no longer think of as hard or complex as I used to. But, like, nothing's that I can think of in my collection has dropped to that point of just being too simple or basic or not being fun in some way. Now, overall, as time goes on, I have found I personally enjoy longer, heavier games more and will seek out chances to play those. And But those are something I usually do like as a special occasion. Those are things I, I we, we set an event night to play these heavy games. But that hasn't stopped me at all from still playing and enjoying simpler games from time to time. 
Like, even just with Deanna and I, who both love heavy games, we were playing Codenames Duet the other day, and we played Great Dancing Meeple. Like, you don't get much lighter than those two. Well, Patchwork's fairly complicated. Or, sorry, Codenames is, uh, I, I don't know, there's brain burning. Great Dancing Meeple, which I'll be talking about later in the show, really, it's got to be pretty low on the weight scale. Now, one of the things, though, I was thinking about when, when thinking about this topic that did click in, though, is that part of what I enjoy about playing games and the whole hobby in general is teaching new players and introducing players to new games, especially games I enjoyed at one point. Like one of my favorite things is when Sean comes down and I'm like, I never can decide what to do because I'm like, man, like he didn't play any of the classics. So like last time he was down, I broke out Alhambra and like, that's going back to like pre two thousands. Right. And I'm like, Sean's got experience Alhambra and sure enough, Sean liked Alhambra. Like it's not the best game ever made, but it's interesting to see that old style game where it's just about drafting cards and building tiles and majority like it's so distilled down compared to say a pulsar with so much stuff going on and he really enjoyed the game and i love showing sean that game or i love going to an event and like teaching someone like roger carcassonne for the first time and seeing their brain explode when they're like wow i don't have to like where were we were at the canadian the, the windsor comic con i this is one of the first times this this is something that blew my mind and we are doing demo games. It was myself and Jeff Seuss. I was showing off Go Cuckoo for the little kids. And Jeff was showing off the Harry Potter Funkoverse game. And we had two teenagers sit down and cosplay. So we had uh, we had uh, Rogue and Cyclops, no, Rogue and Gambit sit down to, to play Harry Potter with us. And the first thing they wanted to do every round was grab the dice and roll them. Because that's what they had done in every other game they have ever played in their entire life that wasn't a card game. Is you start your turn by rolling the dice. And then that tells you what you can do. And we're like, no, 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 no. You can choose. You have four actions. You can move. You can attack. You can do. So I don't roll the dice. And sure enough, like for three to four rounds of that game, they would reach for the dice at the start of their turn. It's your turn. Grab the dice. Like, no, no. You don't only touch the dice if you're attacking. So it's a definitely a thing, right? And it was so neat to show these people this this Harry Potter Funkoverse game that blew their minds. Like, like they're like, it's not a circular board. You don't go clockwise. I can go where I want. Like, they were blown away by these options. And I love that. I love showing people new things. So I thought about this, and I'm like, maybe one of the reasons I haven't grown out of any games is that I'm still excited to share those games with new people. So there's, I don't want to get rid of Carcassonne because I might be able to share that with someone who's never played it before. Although I gotta admit, even with Carcassonne though, like sitting down with a bunch of experts playing Carcassonne was still a ton of fun. So, well, and that's that's one of the things where I feel like um, a good game that isn't solvable, and that's Ooh. a key, right? Because there are games where there is a best path, and and those games I can see you aging out of. Yeah. Uh, but a a good hobby game doesn't have that problem. Yeah. Uh, we try to avoid those games. Uh, Unless so, it's a one and done, like like there are yeah. games designed to do that that are solved, yeah. like puzzle games, right? Like the exit games and stuff like that. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, if you if you if it's a, a replayable game that doesn't have a solution and isn't broken by some you know in some people's terms, um, you you learn new things, and as you're playing, you you start finding new things. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things you know, Sushi Go is a great example of a really silly simple game, but. As you're playing it, you know, the first time you play it, you're focused on your hand, right? You're just trying to figure out what the maximum points you can get with the cards that are offered to you in a draft. And that's how you start the game. And then you figure that out and you realize, oh, wait, they did that. Oh, wait, if I watch what they're drafting over there, then I can think about 
what else is going to be available in the deck and I can plan for that. And then there's, you know, Cart there, there are there are levels of of difficulty that a beginner isn't going to get and doesn't need to get to still enjoy the game. Mm -hmm. But as you evolve, you start unwrapping some of these layers of difficulty in the game and thinking further ahead or thinking thinking about different aspects that that could take uh, you know take you to a next level and 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 just playing that much better. And you unwrap that that depth uh, in the game mm -hmm. that was there all along, but you didn't need to worry about it when you were still a first player new player. Yeah, this is what we're talking about when we talk about system mastery. That's what we're talking about is, is un unraveling, getting through the layers of the game, unraveling the onion, right? Getting to the depth of the onion in the game and, and figuring out those other levels. And going back to Chocolatiers of all things, that was one of those games that had those Eureka moments. Those, while well, I'm playing this game, I'm just drafting these cards to do, oh, wait, but it matters what order, oh. And then you play a little further, like, oh, but wait, it's area majority and only the person has the most scores. And you know what? If I know he's got six and I only got two, I don't even care about that because there's no way, right? And that was one of those games. So I got to admit, that one had a few Eureka moments. And then once you've had them, the game kind of distilled down to, all right, now I've discovered all the things in this game and may not be as interesting. Right. So I don't know. I, I would say overall it happens. Like you may lose interest in some of your games, but I can't see you like assuming you're curating your game collection, which I know Roger is, and you're not just buying every game that comes out on the market. If you're doing your research, good games are replayable. Good hobby board games are replayable multiple times. There's a reason I have played Terraforming Mars 50 times. There's a reason I played Bonanza, like even more than that. Or even like Catan back in the day, we literally played every Saturday for like an entire year while my parents were down in Texas. We went to check on their house on the weekend and we played Catan and drank their booze. That was just the thing we did. And we had groups of up to eight people doing this with multiple tables playing Catan at once. It was like, it was our Catan year. year and that's made some great friends during that time and just played tons of Catan. And but I still have a copy downstairs. I'll admit I don't play it often, but I still have it. We played it at our um was our launch party. We broke out Catan and we played that. So that was pretty cool. And we and again though, I was introducing it to someone new. Sean had never played Catan. And Aaron, who was our webmaster, our awesome webmaster, thanks for all the work the last few weeks. Our awesome webmaster had never played it and we wanted to do this tutorial. And what's awesome is in the last month I've seen Aaron on Twitter sharing pictures of playing Catan. So and really excited about introducing it to her extended family. So that's been awesome. Excellent. So the other thing too with this is where I have seen this happen is something we talked about a couple weeks ago. I don't know, four weeks ago. Actually, a month ago now. Wow, time flies. A month and a half ago, we talked about a topic from Yuho Rutilla, another one of our patrons, was asking about culling your collection. It was like, I'm out of room. I don't know what to do. I need to get rid of something. How do I decide what to get rid of? And we talked about something called the Jones Theory, which I think Cody Jones. Now, I don't have it in front of me, but someone out there, a blogger or a reviewer, had come up with this theory that you should only own one game in your collection for each style of game so like, if you have a deck builder you should only own one deck builder and you shouldn't buy a new deck builder and if you buy a new deck builder you get rid of the one you had uh while i don't totally agree with that particular aspect of it i do think some games can replace other games in your collection and that's where i have seen this so an example is why would i personally play dominion anymore now that i've discovered clank and tyrants of the underdark now i know there are dominion fans out there but dominion for one 
at least in the first edition of the rules, has been basically solved or broken. There are people have found, they call it the big money, is is one of the ways. And there's a couple combos that just can't be beat. Um, second, I just don't find that game that interesting because it's just deck building. There's not enough there. There's not enough things going on. Whereas Clank, I'm also delving into a dungeon and collecting loot and trying to run out of the thing and I'm on a time limit. Or Tyrants of the Underdark, I'm playing a dudes on the folk on the map board game at the same time as I'm deck building and I'm doing things like I want to use chambering from that other game. What is it promoting? I'm promoting my dark elves to my inner sanctum. I think is what it's called or my inner circle to get them out of my deck and score points. And like, there's just more going on and it's more interesting to me and more fun. So I have no reason I ever played dominion and enough people played dominion and dominion to me isn't a game I need to introduce anyone to. I will find a simpler deck builder to introduce them to instead. Like possibly Ascension would probably be my choice. Cause at least you have a rotating market. I, I'm not a big fan of deck builders anymore with a static market i find that kind of boring i'm like i always look at the same 10 cards and it's just a puzzle of figuring out how those 10 cards work together so i totally agree with that so i like that is one of the things that that i think can make me lose interest in a game in my collection is when i find a game that does what it does better so that that is a definitely a valid thing but i don't even know if that's even based on what we're talking about tonight like if that's based on mastery or experience level or skill level or weight no it's just based on someone doing a better job at using a mechanic than someone else right yeah no absolutely and it's cody jones from the uh, cody and jar game on with cody and john is the podcast uh, where it happened See, i can't even remember if i said cody i said a name yeah it's cody cody jones from uh, game on game with on. cody and john uh, during episode 32, November 15th, 2009. Yeah, that was a while ago. That's an early podcast. I don't know if the game on still on. It's not one I sub through if it is. So I don't know. I apologize, Cody. I've never listened to your show, but you sound a little pedantic anyway. So <laughs> now, I, I find that particular theory to be a little harsher than anyone needs to be with their collection. Though I do know people who follow it. We, we had a, a conversation with Keith J. Davies last week on the show well he wasn't on the show but with a comment about why would you ever get rid of a game and and we're terrible gamers for getting rid of games and we obviously did not do enough work before we purchased it if if we had to get rid of a game we made a mistake by buying it fair enough yep uh and yeah and ryan ryan says it quite succinctly in the chat room heavy does not inherently equal good nor light inherently equal bad fair it's enough. just how difficult it is all right you know, so in, in number of mechanics I, I think that's about what we've got for our i don't know unless you have something to add no i, th no, I think uh, we pretty much covered it so just to, to try to recap without scrolling back in my notes so basically roger is experiencing this thing where he started playing games and was like wow that game's really heavy and complex and and was scared of it but then as he played more games was like oh wow no now i get it that's the game's not complicated at all right and this is normal this is some something that's going to happen to anyone who plays games for an extended period of time who is constantly especially anyone who's playing new games if you are constantly exposing yourself to new games new mechanics this is something that's going to happen you're going to become more familiar with the the, the the general mechanics that are out there yet another previous episode we have talks all about all kinds of game mechanics actually the blog post i just updated now a bunch of new ones um as you become more familiar with different games learning new games is going to become easier and your scale of comfort is going to adjust based on your amount of experience and this is perfectly normal and it's something that happens as for recommending games for players because of this the secret is to find a common ground 
find a game that you both agree on is at a set weight and go from there. Would you like to play? You you know Lords of Waterdeep. You like Lords of Waterdeep. Would you like to play something heavier or lighter than Lords of Waterdeep? What do you like about Lords of Waterdeep? And go from there to try to find a game recommendation that fits. Uh, Board Game Geek's weight system can be useful for this. The problem is there's no great way to sort search by weight on Board Game Geek. So that kind of messes it up. There was a site out there that let you sort your whole collection by weight, but I was on it today and I couldn't get it to work. So I don't know if it's something that's died. It's a, it's in a .io site, right? So it's a free site, a free, um, freeware site. I couldn't get to work or else I would have draw. I would have actually, I had a whole paragraph written in the show notes about it until I couldn't get it to work for myself. So that it's not easy to search board game geek for weight, but most people have a good idea, at least the games in their collection, how they, how heavy they feel they are. Uh, please note the weight is subjective. Um, because a game's heavier does not mean it's better. Because you like heavy games doesn't make you a better gamer or more of a gamer than someone that likes light games. Leave that BS at home. Um, and then as for Roger's second part of his question, will I grow sick of my like games basically like as as i evolve and as i start playing more games am i going to make it so that games in my collection are no longer fun for me to play because i've moved on that is possible it may happen to some players but i haven't personally experienced it myself uh, most hobby board games are written to be fun to be replayable and to keep that interest going for a long time even some of the most simple games like azul have way more than enough going on to keep you interested even once you've played many different games just because the game simple doesn't make it bad you can get to the point where you love 18xx's and you still have fun playing Ticket to Ride. That's definitely a thing. All right, well, that's it for what we've got to say on Roger's question this week. Let's head over to the lobby and see if anyone in our chat room has anything to add. So uh, Ryan's Ryan's had a few good comments in there. He's uh, <laughs> coming to my chocolatier. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I strike. I, I don't want to say hating, but uh, my my chocolatier. Uh, Comments is uh, make Chocolatier a seasonal game with an edible addition to give it some staying power outside of replayability. Yeah, we talked about that. That would make her a good one. I gotta say, overall, I thought this was a, a rather fascinating topic from Roger. It's it's something I've definitely experienced. Uh, I have to assume everyone in the lobby has probably experienced this. Like the, to me, this seems to be a universal truth of of playing games. And it, I think it, we didn't talk about role playing games at all here today, but I think that's definitely a thing. Um, though I find with role players. You really shift from what you like. So in uh, your first game, is going to have a huge impact on what you think of as heavy or not. So like I started with Marvel superheroes and I got to admit Dungeons and Dragons at first seemed unfathomable. Whereas if you started with Dungeons and Dragons, you're going to look at something like Rollmaster and be like, wow, that's simple enough. There's just a few more charts and a few more things to track. And you're going to look at stuff like um, Dream Park and be like, what is this piece of fluff? Like, uh, there's nothing here. There's no rules. So it's de definitely a thing with role players. But what I found with role playing is I find there's like a thing where people want more and more and more and more and more and more detail and more complex. And then for some reason, they hit this point where they like hit peak complexness and either they stay there. And there are people there. I, there is a group in Windsor that has and will always play Rollmaster. And I have a friend that still swears by GURPS. And I think they'll always will. But then most groups seem to all of a sudden like hit this slippery slope of getting into story games and liking lighter and lighter games where the story matters. And then I found uh, a good example of this is the Misdirected Mark Play podcast and our friend Phil Vecchione, who goes down this slippery slope of story games, but then finds DCC and then starts finding that he's liking Crunch more and more. And he's like, oh, I like having all these restrictions and things that are, I have, I have rules for everything and it's not just freeform and he's enjoying that again so it seems to be a roller coaster yeah for me there's a real um 
sort of a variety. Uh, again, I am right now drifting into story game and really enjoying a lot of what some of those systems uh, bring in their simplicity and story narrative focus. But I don't want to play a dungeon crawler like the, with, with that. Yeah, that's... If I'm playing a dungeon crawler, I want the structure. I want, you know, I, I want a little more crunch. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, if I'm going to do a dungeon, I'm probably going to want DCC. But if I want to play supers, I, I, part of the, the openness of something like superheroes, especially, because you can't, you don't want, necessarily want to have a rule for every possible superpower, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, you know, you don't want a 400 Some games did that. And some games have done that, absolutely. Uh, but that can really get in the way of, of the freedom of telling a fun, campy superhero story, which is a lot of what, you know, me in particular is going for in that kind of a game, right? Where you're looking for to tell that story and, and things that get in the way of that or slow down that progression. Um, and again, we're, we're in a, we're in a time where online play is something that happens a lot. Uh, and especially if you're doing something text-based, too much crunch really gets in the well, way of, of that flow. Uh, so I, and that's where I'm drifting towards this narrative, mm -hmm. you know, limit the roles, limit the rules and just get that story out there. Even though I like the crunch mm -hmm. of the heavy. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I don't know. I, I the polygamers thing applies. I, it depends what kind of a story I want to play and I, I yeah. will enjoy both. I liked fourth ed D and D and I freely admit that I love that system, but it was very much a board game feeling tactical move guys on the map, maximize your turns, resource management kind of game versus a tell a heroic tale. You're still telling a heroic tale, but it was very much about the, we beat the dragon because I went here and this guy used this power that caused me to flank. And then the wizard did this thing where everything swirled around, right. which the story you told versus the bard story of finding the weak chink and firing the arrow at the right spot. Right. It was, it was very different style of play. And I, again, I think both are valid and I've had fun doing both. Absolutely. They absolutely both have their place in a game and it, it all depends on what everyone wants and is, is trying to get out of that game. All right. So this is your chance, Lobby. You obviously, like, you have to admit, you went through this, right? Like, I, I don't think this is a strange phenomenon that has only affected Roger and myself. So I, I would like to hear some examples, if you can, of games that you used to think were heavy and aren't, or anything else you'd add to this conversation. And in the meantime, I'm going to go back through the chat. While we were talking, we had a couple people going back and forth. So one of the things to note was that uh, Race for the Galaxy's weight has something to do with how intrusive the iconography is, or intuitive, sorry, the iconography is to And Croc, I think you touched on that a little bit. I, I did mention that a bit that yeah that's that's a big part of it the other aspect though is the blind choice of actions so here's an example of uh puerto rico being or san juan being a better example so you have you have puerto rico a fairly heavy game that they created an easier game a card game version called san juan race for the galaxy is derived from san juan in san juan you are choosing your actions from a pace up pile of here are the different roles you can choose which is a level of complexity. Like that's multiple choices. That's not just every turn you do the same thing. But then when you get to race for the galaxy, that choice becomes blind and people can choose the same thing. And, Race to the Galaxy has one of those Eureka moments, and this is part of what makes the game hard, is to really play Race for the Galaxy well, you have to predict what roles your opponents will use and take advantage of that. 
if you chose settle and everyone else in the group also chose settle, you probably failed. You should have chose something else and taken advantage of them choosing settle. Or if you choose, now you do get a bonus for being the one that chose settle, you get a card. But unless, like, same thing, if you're going to develop, unless you really need that one discount, you want someone else to develop while you're doing something else so you can get that development done. And that's the level that puts it above San Juan. That's why the difficulty of Race for the Galaxy, I would say, is a medium game and not like a medium light because it's that extra level. It's not just learning the icons. It's also learning how to play your opponents. And that's the one reason that any time anyone says that uh, Race for the Galaxy is multiplayer solitaire, I want to slap them because I'm like, the the whole way to win that is to read your opponents and figure out, and not necessarily like read their faces like social deduction, but like look at what they have in play and go look he's got five resources on the board he's probably going to sell next turn so i want to make sure i hit that times two so i can take advantage of the sell or look that guy with all the planets hasn't produced in a long time so i don't have to produce i can be busy developing while he bothers wasting his turn to produce and so on so i think that that's a big level of it there yeah no absolutely uh ryan points out that compared to lords of Waterdeep, D 5n is pretty hardcore oh yeah <laughs> definitely is that is a much there's a big step that's a big jump um i don't this i don't know if board game geek has or rpg geek has weight ratings for rpgs and i'd wonder where dungeons and dragons is on that scale i would say fifth ed is way lighter than fourth but then there were so many things that were put out to mitigate the weight of fourth like stuff like cards to be able to track your powers that made things a lot easier because it limited how much information was presented to the player at one time so yeah, Ryan, when it comes to what I consider challenging, it comes down to the information and decision management. The more of either there are for me with my blindness, the more difficult I'm going to find a game to play. After that, the strength of the marriage of theme with mechanics will determine my willingness to push through it with success of plays or not. So that's an interesting one. We, I get accused of this all the time on the show, and he's right. Anyone who's accused me of it is I don't. We don't talk about theme enough on this show because I, I like I like theme. I prefer my games to have theme. I think theme matters, but what catches my attention is always the mechanics. So. For some players, theme is definitely more important, and theme could be the thing that lets you push through that difficulty level of system mastery. Yep. Well, and I think that's part of why I feel like Pulsar clicked with me. Yeah, was it's the theme. Well the theme themed. clicked with me better than um, some others have. So I, I enjoyed the sci-fi stuff. So. So another one Ryan mentions is the games that facilitate a metagame can end up being more hardcore experiences if you have players willing to learn that meta aspect. Now, I don't do a lot of games that do that have meta, but that is a huge part of why people are still playing Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. That's what keeps people interested is that metagame. And that goes for almost any game where they keep putting out exam- expansions. Of course, then there's that whole power creep, which is the other side of this topic, which is something maybe we'll talk about another time. But, and again, that also gets into why people like Werewolf, and and we don't, but, you know, there is that sort of immersion uh, and and, and meta aspect of, you know, of of some of those games. Um, And for, to be honest, you, part of the reason why you like um, uh, Knights of the Roundtable. Shadows of Camelot. Shadows of Camelot. um, Is is for that Mm -hmm. that metagame aspect and and that that role-playing aspect in the game. Um, of course, it's also part of the reason why you don't, you're, you have had problems with things like Battlestar Galactica, but yeah, that's, that's <laughs> people taking it to not understanding yeah. Yeah, aspects yeah. of the game. That would be the perfect game. If you could get people to 
everyone played it, grokked it. I would love yeah. that game. It would be my number one game. It was for a while until I had a couple bad experiences. You almost need to teach people who've never seen the show, who don't know anything That's how about I learned the game. To be honest, like I, Alex Belden, who, hey, Alex, if you happen to listen to the show, used to live in Windsor, moved away. A local gamer I actually really enjoy playing with at the Knights of Columbus on Walker Road is the one that taught me to play Battlestar Galactica. And I would have never touched it. But he's like, this is the best game I've ever played. you got to play it. And I'm like, I have never seen the show. Like, I saw the old one like yeah. the, with Vipers. and Well, it's still the same character, so I can't even say it. The 1970s <laughs> version. And I loved it as a kid. I even still have some action figures. I still have my Daggett, and I still have a Starbuck. But um, I loved it, but I'm like, I had no idea what was going on. And I think I was better for that. And I got to admit, the theme of the game seems so cool. That's what got me to go get the complete series of the DVDs and watch it, which I got to, I'm sure, like everyone in the world, that show was awesome at the beginning and went places that I don't know. Yeah. And thankfully, I didn't, the game didn't go on far enough to get to the silly part. Right. It was still solid. Ryan mentions there's a group of uh, TI4 players so deep into the meta that they're playing the game at an ascended level due to the weight of their TI4 experience. <laughs> I bet you it's true, though. Like, if you play the game enough to know all the different races, that the game would be completely different than non-experienced gamers playing. The same thing is going to happen with any of those big 4X games or any of the games. Terra Mystica is an example. Until you have played hundreds, like, uh, I don't know, 20s, 30s of games of Terra Mystica, you are not taking into account what the other races can do. Like, they're just there. They're on the board. They're doing their own thing. But I'm sure you hit that level where you're like, I'm playing against Swarmlings, which means they're going to be putting out a lot more trading posts than anyone else. And I'm going to have to make sure I don't build next to them so that they don't get to do that for free. You know, like, like yeah. I'm sure that level exists. And I played over 40 games of that game, and I'm not there. Yep. I will note that certain ones, witches, I know when I'm playing against witches, they're going to pop up stupid cities all over the greens and trying to make sure I take greens or make sure I, they, that I yep. break them up so they can't connect them. So witches is one of the ones I can do that with. Um, Frost giant or giants are another one. I know they always spend two, two shovels and they only start with one spot on the board. So if you can surround that one spot, they're pretty much screwed. But other than that, that's two out of 18 races that I have like a, a strategy yep. for. Yep. But I'm I'm sure there's people out there that have played every race. Like at this point, I've now I think I've now officially played every race once. But that's it. Like I'm not at that <laughs> level where I adjust yep. my gameplay based on the other player races. I adjust my gameplay based on the race I'm playing, and that's about it. Right. I'm still working on the adjusting on my own race. So. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Clans of Caledonia. I'm still. I'm like no. I'm. I am not adjusting enough for what other players can do. I totally miss. I think it's part of the presentation of that game that you have to scroll down to see it, and right. I totally forget what you guys can even do. Except I just look at where I am on the board and worry about my own. Yeah. I feel. See, I feel like I'm actually getting better faster at clans of caledonia than i am at terra mystica although i think we might have been playing it a little more too so yeah well there's less to take into consideration too again i, I i'm not a fan of comparing those two games <laughs> despite having some similarities all right well fine. all right if finally that's it i think at this point the chat's a little quieter this night i don't know it's a slow night compared to the last couple months weeks and, and no why we didn't have technical difficulties today so there we go we, we got to make sure we didn't <laughs> get people coming up Finally, if you've got a game or game night question for us, remember, you just have to head over to the website, click on us, the bellhop, or email me directly at questions at tabletopbellhop.com. Up next, a look at Telestration's Upside Drawn, a new team-based version of the classic party game from the op. Please note, the op provided us with a review copy of this game. No other compensation was provided. All right, I got to start this review by uh, sharing my bias here. I 
think Telestrations is one of the best designed party games of all time. The original Telestrations. I love Telestrations. It's the one game I break out pretty much anytime we get a group of six or more people together and it's supposed to be a party atmosphere. So I got to say when the op posted in a board gaming reviewer group on Facebook and was like, we're looking for reviewers. I jumped at this. I was like, Oh my God, a new Telestrations. I got to try this team based version. This looked great. I had, I had to write right away. And then thank you the op for replying positively. So Telestrations upside drawn. That's this new edition is designed by Kane Klenko. This is a, a really big name that you're going to hear a lot in the 2019s and 2020s for games. Kane Klenko is knocking it out of the park lately. Uh, this has been published by The Op this year in 2020. This drawing game plays 2 to 12 players broken into 2 to 4 teams. For a look at what you get in the box, be sure to check out our unboxing video on YouTube. Now, there's not a lot to talk about here. Uh, pretty basic. Four drawing boards, two-sided, some nice fine point markers, which is a note for people who played the original game. Nice fine point markers. Uh, a set of cards with a 1,000 different clues included in the box. A die to determine which category you're drawing and some scoring tokens. Everything's pretty much excellent quality, no complaints. It's great. Uh, one slight adjustment. It's actually 4 to 12 players, not 2 to 12. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that is... That's, <laughs> me typing badly yeah it's teams you can't play teams of one this game would not work as a two-player game so nothing unexpected as it's a quality similar to the original games with those nicer markers uh which we are fans of here uh but the similarities sort of end there yeah so one of the things is this is a team game uh, each team is going to have two to three members. During each round of the game, one player, called the guide, is going to be moving the drawing board. And the only thing they are allowed to say are the words up and down to another player, the artist. Now, the artist, all they do is hold the marker, and they follow the guide's orders of going up and down. So they're the ones getting, like, doing the drawing while the other player is moving the board. And they are trying to guess the clue. Now, if you do have a third team member... If there is one, they stand on the side and they're also trying to guess. So in case anyone missed it, the important thing to note here is that one person is drawing by moving the board while another person just holds the pen steady. And it's the person holding the pen that's trying to guess. So a strange sort of turtle graphics, for those of you old enough to recognize that, uh, with the difficulty turned up to 11. Wow. Oh, man. Can you imagine a programming win, lose, or draw? With turtle graphics? Oh, I want that game now. Where you have, like, cards to program it out? Oh, I kind of want that, especially if you don't get to see it. You just have to look at the programming language and try to guess what's being drawn. Oh, anyway, I, the shine got me off on a tangent there. <laughs> so what's being drawn each round is determined by a category die with each clue having five different options for each card. So each clue card having five different options. There are person, place, action, thing, or phrase. Uh, the sixth side of the die is a wild, where the player who rolls the die that turn gets to pick the category. The interesting thing here, though, is they don't get to pick the category. They don't get to see the card before they pick the category. So you got to pick the category before you see it. Because just drawing something in this convoluted manner isn't difficult enough already. Now, to make things easier on the guesser, the guide can use hints. Now, these are on the side of the board. These include hot, cold, sounds like narrower scope and broader scope and those can be used to try to help uh, your team now you keep playing everyone drawing at once no looking at each other's boards uh though you can listen to each other's clues which is actually a big part of trying to figure it out when someone's on the right track and you're on the wrong track uh the first team to correctly guess the clue wins the round they're going to get a number of points based on the difficulty of the word that's indicated on the clue card game keeps going around and around playing multiple times until someone hits 20 points 
And we should mention that by the rules, you can't actually point at these hints. Nothing so simple as that, but we'll get back to that later. So as for my overall thoughts on Telestration's Upside Drawn, I have to start by saying I'm not normally a big fan of party games in general. There are a handful that I do really enjoy, and the original Telestrations is one of those, along with a few other games like Concept, Codenames, and Medium, just to give you an idea from where I'm coming from. And I am a bit sad to report this game is not really a Telestrations game to me. It's in te- it's Telestrations in name only. Because the whole thing in Telestrations and the tele part of it is that it's based on the classic game of Telephone, where you are passing the your booklet around and hoping it gets back to be the same answer. None of that's in here. This is more like a traditional drawing party game like your Pictionaries, or for those of us old enough, win, lose, or draw. What I am happy to say, though, is that Telestration's Upside Drawn does stand on its own. It brings something totally new to the drawing party game genre with its unique method of tomb-based play. The most brilliant thing here is the thing that I, I have to harp on because it's that aspect where one player is manipulating the board while it's another player who's holding the marker and trying to guess. This is where all the fun is. This is what makes Upside Drawn uh, a neat game as it is. Because not only are por- players forced into the unfamiliar action of trying to draw by moving a board, or you're moving the pen instead of the paper, or sorry, you're moving the paper instead of the pen, you're also drawing upside down. And what we found this does is this levels the playing field in a rather hilarious way. Like this unique drawing method means that anyone who's normally an expert artist is pretty much on the same level as people can barely draw a stick figure because it doesn't matter how good you are. You're no one, unless maybe you spent your life learning to draw by moving the paper, you're not going to be good at this. Yeah, don't expect anyone to wow you with their artistic skills. More like be wowed if you can manage to correctly identify a single item that has been drawn. (laughs) Now, similar to the original game, uh, one of the things we did not love was the scoring system. Now, first off, I have no idea who assigned the point values to these clues, but multiple times we're like, what? How is that worth one? Like, how? there is no way that that should have been worth one point. Added to that is the fact a full game is meant to be 20 points. Now, I don't know who put the box, the time on the box, but I don't think anyone could have done. Like, on the box, it says you can play this game in 20 minutes. Like, if you're trying to get to 20 points, it takes forever. Like, I don't know how you can get to 20 points in 20 minutes, because that means you would have one minute to guess, and that's only if the same team won all 20 times in a row. Right. Like just it's it's not actually possible. The same team would have to win around every minute to fit that playtime. So the playtime that they put on the box doesn't seem to be based on their own scoring system. So, well, now, interestingly, I just noticed on the board game geek page, it says the first team to reach 10 points. Oh, the rules are definitely 20. Yeah, no, that's just interesting. Why? Why it's different on uh, the board game geek page, Um, because 10 points might make it possible. Possible. It's possible yeah but sadly party games are very hit and miss when it comes to scoring in general Mm. and unfortunately this is 0 for 2 in scoring on telestrations though i don't actually think that's a big deal uh the playtime versus scoring discrepancy is a far more concerning issue but now it seems i've discovered that there is some confusion there too so yeah whoever made the board game geek entry might be wrong on something there possible because i gotta say for our games we usually host ruled it we either stop playing like basically when we got bored right like hey we've been playing for an hour it's time to stop whoever had the highest points wins or uh we did what board game geek seems to recommend we found 10 points seemed to be a good 
good spot for about an hour's worth of play. But even 10 points still took us about an hour, not 20 minutes. Uh, and just to confirm, the op has 20 points on their product page. Yeah. So I said, well, it's, I said, this is right from the rules, say 20. Yep. So I don't, I don't know about that. I, I, 10 points seems to be a good for, for a solid game. But again, you're not going to finish in 20 minutes. Now, if more of the clues were with two and three, possibly, but most are just worth one. So now, as Sean mentioned earlier, there's one other aspect of the game that we did end up house ruling, and that's the use of hints. Because the rules as written are literally, you got to say up, Move the board over so the artist markers over the little flame pitcher for hot and say down and then say up. And if you want to say hot, 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 you can say down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. And we found that by the time you do that, by moving the board, the person's drawing's focus changes to that icon and they totally forget what's supposed to be hot. Like they don't remember what they just drew or what they just said. Like it, it seemed almost like more of a distraction than an actual hint. And plus there's the amount of time wasted. Like you're telling them to go up, you're having to slide the board over to a different part and you're at to drop it down. Like there's some skill required and it just didn't seem to, it seemed overly complicated. So the house rule we came up with was pretty simple. Most of the time when you're moving the board, you're only using one hand or you can just stop and you just tap with your finger on the clues. Yeah. So, and honestly, this seems like a no brainer when the game is already stretching its time with scoring, adding another feature that just prolongs the game just seems like a poor choice. The hints are exact enough to make quicker access to them, or not exact, not exact enough to make a quicker access to them any sort of a game breaker. Plus, you're playing a team game. If everyone's playing by the same rules, you're all on the same page. Like, if every team can tap on the on the hints, every team can tap on the hints. Right. Now, I, these two complaints, right? The scoring and, and the hint system, these are minor complaints. They really are. These are easily fixed with house rules. I like I almost don't want to call them complaints in a way because they're so easy to fix. This is a fun game. This uh, illustrations upside down drawn is fun. The, the the most enjoyable aspect, of course, is at the end of the round. And this is something that reminds me of the original illustrations. Is sitting there going, "What you got that based on that right? Like that everyone shows like because in this game you're all going for the same clue, right? Like you're all trying. Every team's trying to draw the same thing. And like I remember one of them being bite or chew. I think it was and like putting down everyone's boards and comparing them. Uh, you've seen me share a couple. If anyone follows me on Twitter, you've seen me share a couple of the, the boards we've had up. There's a couple more on the review once that goes live on the blog where you can kind of see what people were trying to draw. And that, that is some of the most fun is looking at the end going, what the heck was that supposed to be? Or the realization as the person who was holding the pen, once they finally see why they were drawing what they were drawing, could go, oh, that was supposed to be a pine cone. I get it. So that's one of the most fun parts. Overall, we had quite a bit of fun with Telestrations Upside Down. I like that it's team-based. And I got to say, Kane came up with a brilliant way to do a team-based drawing game. Like, I've never seen anything like this. The whole guide artist system is brilliant. And I actually found it a lot more fun than it sounds. Because I admit, when I first heard about that, that sounded more frustrating than fun. The unique drawing mechanics actually worked really well. And they did, I like the fact that they let players with different artistic ability play on a more level playing field. This is a very enjoyable party game in this box, and it's one I'm glad I own. Yeah, I think the teams and the cooperation on this one are the big key to where it can thrive or not. Uh, I could see this as a huge winner when you're able to have another family over and you're competing against them, you know, a, you know, couples nights or something like that, or at a family picnic. Um, whereas it may not be as uh, successful if it's a group of individual friends, mm -hmm. um, that because that that relationship teamwork thing is part mm -hmm. of the aspect of the game that makes it work. Whereas the original illustration doesn't matter, 
right? No. Everyone's individual and, and there's no, you don't have to worry. Yeah, that's something, that unfortunately, due to the pandemic, I have to admit, I have not gotten a chance to try this game with a bunch of strangers as I normally would. So if that does happen, if we ever go back to game nights at the local game store, I'll be sure to share my thoughts to see if things have changed. We have only played it with friends and family. And I will admit that there is that shared experience. The I drew this weird thing, which means something only to me and you is definitely can be a part of the game. Now, what I can't say, and I feel bad about this, is this is, I can't say this is a better game than Telestrations, the original one. I love the original Telestrations. Like, while we had fun with this, it wasn't the fun I've had with Telestrations. Like, I think in my entire gaming career, I have laughed more and harder playing the original Telestrations than any other game I've ever played in my entire life. Like, I think at this point, nothing is going to beat the original Telestrations as my favorite drawing base party game. I, I, it's, I'd love to find the game that usurps it. That said, it's cool to have this as an alternative or an additional drawing game to break out during our next party game night. And I got to say, I think this might be a better choice for 3 a.m. at Extra Life because one of the problems we found with the original is when you're trying to stay up 24 hours laughing your butt off at 3 a.m. is actually a detriment to being able to keep going for the rest of the night. Well, for a more in-depth look at Telestration's Upside Drawn, you can head over to TabletopBellhop.com and click on Reviews. And now a look at the PIP System Corebook, a D6-based generic role-playing system that's great for new players and kids. Please note that Eloy LaSanta provided us with a review copy of this book. No other compensation was provided. Now, it's also worth noting this is a read review only. I have sat down and read this core book and flipped through it and gone through it a couple times, but I have not gotten the chance to get it to the table either as a player or game guide. Now, normally this is the part of the review where I tell you and to go to our YouTube unboxing video, but that's not the case today. RPG rule books aren't really something you can unbox, though maybe if people wanted a page flip video, let us know. Now, what I can do is tell you what I thought about the production quality of the book, which was excellent. Now, I am talking about the paperback version of the PIP System Core book here. It is also available in both PDF and hardcover. Now, my copy is a digest size paperback book, very well bound, uh, clocks in at 144 pages long. Uh, includes everything you want in an RPG rulebook, including a full table of context, an index, and a character sheet at the on the last page of the book. Uh, it's full color. Lots of excellent, evocative artwork showing diverse characters and scenes from a bunch of different genres. Because again, this is a universal system. Uh, the text is larger than usual than you see in most books, which is kind of nice. Kind of reminds me of a kid's book, which my aging eyes definitely had appreciated. Uh, it's also a good indication of the family nature, family-friendly nature of this book. Uh, text is in a pretty standard two-column format for the majority of the book, only broken for things like uh, charts and sample characters. Overall, I found it to be well-written, easy to read, and clear. Uh, my first read-through was done in a single afternoon. So this isn't one that you're going to have to keep reading multiple days. Now, I may, may, most people might break that up over a couple days, but still. Now, uh, for RPG reviews, RPG reviews are always a little hard to, to cover on a podcast. So over on the blog, I deep-dive this book literally chapter by chapter. So I go into each chapter, what they present, how they presented, how well the information is presented and so on. So if you want to know everything you get here in detail, I do encourage you to check out the article for the podcast though. I'll be sticking to more of a general overview of the game book. Now, before I go further, it's worth noting, this is a generic role-playing system. So this is a system created to let you play multiple types of games, almost any type of genre or setting. Uh, the character generation is generic, 
So it can it's it's done the same for all settings. But other rule sections are kind of split, uh, depending on what you're talking about. And the what Aloy has done here is presented um, four different main setting types, which are fantasy, modern, sci-fi, and spooky. These are presented, all of the rules are presented as guidelines and suggestions on how to do things to capture the feel of a specific genre, but players are free to mix, match, and mash up to create unique settings. So how much different, uh, when it comes to actual mechanics, how much do they differ between genres, or is it more related to the character page and the character creation that is on its own where the mechanics live? Uh, the only place you have any unique mechanics is the magic system. So if you want to throw magic into your game, so mainly a fantasy game, but also think if you want space wizards, you might also use the magic system for that, or like psionics, or or even in a sci-fi or spooky setting, you might want to throw in some magic. But generally, that's the only one that has anything unique. Everything else is, it's just a way to group the stuff so that like the, the rules for robots are in the sci-fi section. So if you want the monster stats for robots, you look there. And when you're generating, we'll get to this in a minute, but you, there's some random tables you to generate some stuff well they're they're specific to the setting just for thematic reasons mechanically though they're all identical so there are three pretty simple steps to making a character in the pip system you're going to choose an archetype you're going to choose skills and qualities or sorry buy skills and qualities and you're going to roll on to, on some random charts to determine two random things about your character uh you're given 16 different archetypes the archetypes determine your two health stats there's physical health and mental health those are your two hit points if you want to use that D term they give you three of your starting skills uh two at two one at one and they give you a special ability that's unique to the arc type finally you also get a hindrance which is also unique to that archetype uh these include i'm not going to go through all 16 different types but like there's adventurer artisan brute chef magic user marksman sleuth tinkerer as some of the examples so pretty much what you'd expect when you hear a list of archetypes now, after you pick your archetype, you're going to customize using build points to buy skills and qualities. Um, there are 14 skills in the game. Uh, these would be your stats in D&D. Like, instead of having strength, dex, con, you instead have a bunch of skills like coerce and uh, strike and aim are different ones. Um qualities are basically like specializations it's the way i like to think of them from other games so like you will have your core skill but you could spend points in liar which is a quality under the skill course a character's in a quality uh, level in a quality can never be higher than the level in the skill these two combined are going to tell you how many dice to roll once we get to the mechanics now, in addition to that, there are a number of advanced qualities. These are just basically like special abilities. And it was a way for for the game to include things like backstabbing, um, being able to fly, or being able to cast spells. So they, these were unique abilities that you could buy in addition. And they're based on, you have to have certain prerequisites to be able to buy them. You also use those build points to buy gear. But again, this isn't like a shopping trip type of thing. It's more creating like things that are unique to your character. So if you have like your father's magic sword, or if you have a suit of powered armor, or if you happen to have a jet bike, you would build it using build points. Right. Now, some people can be against these point systems because yeah. along with the flexibility that you get with them comes a sort of uh, analysis paralysis of character design uh, with too many choices. Is there any mitigation for that or is it uh, sort of go to town? 
it kind of goes both. So part of what they've done is if you want to get to the game right away, they did provide a number of sample characters that are already built. So if you just want to dive right in, this is a good, I guess, especially if you're playing with kids or new gamers. So you don't have to present those choices. Uh, they do walk through how to build a character. And I think the big one here is going to be the level of mastery that the, um, they call it the game guide in this instead of the game master, because a lot of people have had a problem with the term master over the years. And I do get changing it. So game guide or just guide, which I dig it. That term works. So the guide in this case, if they know it, there's only 14 skills. So you're not doing strength dex con, right? Instead, you're looking at 14 things, which is, say, more than D&D. But it's going to be one of those things where you're going to specialize in one or two areas. So you're going to look and go, you know, I want to build a swashbuckler, so I'm going to want aim, I'm going to want athletics, and I'm going to want piloting because I want to be able to use my boat, for example. So I, there are choices, but I don't think it's too many. I've definitely played games that have way more skills, way more things to pick, uh, like Vampire being an example of a game that probably has three times more things to pick from. Right. But it's not as simple as roll 4d6 and drop them in order either. Right. Now, character creation finishes off with a random element, and this is two rolls on two random charts. There's six different charts for each of the four different genres. So first, you're going to find the genre you're playing in. You're going to drop a die to see which chart you roll on, and then you're going to roll again to see what item you get on it. Um, these are all over the place. Like, there's, just as an example, there's the modern fun item chart, where you could get a boombox or a remote control car. Or there's the sci-fi features table that could give you implanted gills or retractable reading glasses. There is a lot of fun stuff on here and um I'm a, the, the designer really pushes to throw this random element so that even though you've come up with your swashbuckling person who's going to pilot their boat why do they have a doll that squeaks and then throwing that into their, their, their whole character concept. Or why do they why are they missing one eye? Because it's not just items on these tables. There's also affectations or whistles all the time might come up. It's like there is a big it's a lot of different options on these charts. Right. So a fun nudge through the random element that players can use to help direct their character design with. You know, oh, I got a, a radio and implanted gills, so my swashbuckler is actually gonna be a submersible DJ. You know. <laughs> there you go. That sounds like I now Sean's got to play a submersible DJ in a game. <laughs> totally like getting crowds of fish swarming around and be able to control them like a rocker boy in cyberpunk. The best yeah. class ever made by man. Now the basic mechanics moving past the character. Now you got this. So what you're going to do is, is your typical, the player describes what they want to do and the game master decides what skills apply. But what they do push here is that it should be a conversation that it shouldn't just be the game guide who always determines what skills. If a player can come up with a good reason that a skill can be used, they should be able to do it. So that's something nice to see. It's a, it's a very modern way of thinking compared to older traditional games. So you're going to sit there and you're going to build a dice pool out of white dice. So you're going to get points for your skill if you have any qualities that apply. And then your gear or anything else that applies, you get to also throw in some dice. You're going to make a bunch of white dice based on those factors. Then the game guide, which is, again, the game master, is going to decide the challenge rating from one to five. They're going to give you a number of black dice depending on how difficult they think it can be. Now, if you're looking at opposing another character, the number isn't just a number arbitrarily assigned by the GM. It's instead based on the the, the stats of the extra. The extras are termed for, for uh, NPCs. So another one I thought, like, because Eloy's argument is the characters are the stars, so everyone else is an extra. Like, fair. I like it. Uh, so the extra might have a stat. So if, I, if I'm trying to race an extra, I look at the extra's athletic. That's the challenge rating instead of a number one to five arbitrarily assigned. So basically, it's your opposition. It's, it's how difficult what you're trying to do is. You grab black dice for those. You get a huge pool, and you roll them all. So I have to say, opposed dice pools are something I haven't seen too often. And an interesting choice um, 
Now, I haven't done the numbers on it. I know there's there's some programs out there uh, that'll let you do opposed yeah. dice uh, math on any dice. Uh, and I'm interested in looking to those, but it's it's definitely an interesting choice to go with self-rolled opposed dice pools. Yeah, the self-rolled is definitely different. The the you roll everything yourself is a unique design choice. And in the book, it does mention you could switch it up so that someone else rolls the opposition, but as written. Um, so what you're doing here now is you're looking for successes. Really simple. This is this is a even odd. It could be. It, it is. Um, there is an entire role playing system based on this, and you can buy special dice just for it. And I can't remember the name of it. I think it might be the Ubiquity system, where it's literally fifty fifty chance on every. Ubiqu Ubiquity is the one. Yeah, it's the Ubiquity system. So you could probably play this with Ubiquity system and reduce the number of dice you're rolling. But anyway, the the whole thing is if you roll four, five, or six, it's a hit. So fifty fifty chance you got a hit on your dice. You're gonna take all your dice to hit and put all the other ones aside and count them. If you have more white dice, if you have at least one more white die that's hit than black dice, you succeed. Pretty simple. If you have at least one more black die, you fail. If you tie, that's where you pull in the improv, very modern role-playing yes-but result. So you succeed at a cost. And that's up to, again, the game master to, to come up with the, sorry, the game guide to come up with uh, what happens, but they are encouraged to work with the players. Um, if you succeed, though, they also have a crit and a, and a fail system in here. If you succeed by three or more on your white dice, so if you have more than three successes than on the white than the black, you get an epic success, uh, which is a yes and. So you get something in addition to succeeding. And then similarly, if a task fails by three or more, you have an epic failure where the guide provides an additional no end. So not only did you fail, but you also hit all your friends or also the building collapsed or you hurt an innocent bystander or something. Now that's the basics. Um, there's more to it, obviously. There's burst dice, which where dice explode on a six that can get you can get for certain items and feats. There's modifiers for training cover, uh, rules for working together, rules for extended tasks, all the stuff you expect to find in pretty much any role-playing game yeah it, it's a deep system with a lot of moving parts and unlike the beginner's folios and shadow room we discussed previously i'm guessing the math here isn't pre-done for you no. to generate your pools no and, and it couldn't be because this is one of those games where just because a quality is under one skill they don't necessarily have to go together and there's very much the uh, i call them bsing style of, of role-playing where the player, if they can come up with a good enough reason to use things, they can. Which is pretty common in modern narrative. Yeah, they like said that it's definitely, a, it's definitely a thing. So there's a big part of that to this. So I don't think they could pre-calculate any of the pools because it's all going to be about, well, this quality applies because, and well, remember three days ago I did this, so I get to apply this to it as well. So there's definitely nothing like that. Now, again, another uh, almost hallmark of modern role-playing games is some type of spendable resource that lets you change the game, and that does exist in this. Uh, it's fortune. Every session, you start with three fortune points. These can be done to do a number of things like healing, um, adding a white die to a roll, adding a white die after you've seen the results, which is interesting, but that costs two fortune. Um, create narrative advantage, which is literally you spend a fortune to be able to add something to the scene. Um, suggestions include things like bringing in other characters that aren't present so that other people can get involved in the scene. Having advantageous situations happen, you know, like a thunderstorm happens just before you're about to try to escape the castle or whatever. Um, casting extra spells, which gets into the magic system. And what they call passive luck, what that can be used for is... Something bad was going to happen to your character, but you don't know what it is, but the DM gives you an option to spend it. So it's like, oh, would you like to spend a fortune right now? And they're like, uh, yeah. Okay, you duck as a to tie your shoes just as a bullet whizzes over your head, right? So that's what they call a, a system called passive luck. Uh, there's a couple other ways you can do it. 
earning fetch fortune is done for this is a good one this is a fail forward thing anytime you get an epic failure you get rewarded for it you get a fortune point so yeah something crappy happens to your character but at least you get a fortune point out of it um when you roll an epic success you get that i did it and you can forego the end. You can say, no, nah, no, nah, I just want to succeed. That'll get you a fortune, fortune point. And the game guide and the other players are also welcome to give rewards for immersive role playing. Like someone just like that's supposed to be like a big, like almost standing ovation moment where you want to clap. You're like, here you go. Here's your Benny. Here's your reward for doing it. Right. And and that sort of thing really makes for a more narratively flexible system, right? Mm-hmm. You're not you're not locked in by the randomness of the dice system, you've got that little extra oomph because you know that doing that thing is just going to make the whole scene yeah. sing. Yeah, again, it's a trademark of modern role-playing, really. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously more to this. Um, there are rules for conflict, so that's a step above what we described before is basically the task system. Um, no, conflict doesn't necessarily mean fight. Uh, this could be an argument to a starship dogfight. Rules are basically the same with a couple extra rules like timing. So there is an, an initiative system, which is really simple. It just uses a D6 and an attack versus defense system. Again, attack doesn't necessarily mean like firing a weapon. Attack could mean uh, 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 insulting someone or trying to get push someone over the edge or a, um, a court like debate or trying to become prom king. All those different things. So they uses the term attack, but it doesn't necessarily mean with violence. When attacking, the attacker picks which skill they use, and interestingly, the defender chooses which skill to defend with. That's what I like. It's the fact it's a choice. Skills are not specifically set for each type of combat, though, of course, there are a number of skills that probably are going to fit the story better or fit better. But what this means is, well, an attacker might use strike. That's your basic hit someone in melee type of attack. To hit you with a sword, you might decide to defend with coerce because you're trying to distract them with witty barbs. I really dig that. The other big change in conflict, of course, is your margin of success is the damage you do. So if you succeed with three successes above the black, you're doing three damage. Uh, All characters have physical and mental health, and you can choose which. So again, even if you're attacking with the sword, you could do mental damage, which represents the person becoming uh, fatigued and stressed out instead of specifically injured. Now, when you get into uh, vehicles and extras, they just have one stat just to keep things simple. Right. Well, that makes sense. I'm getting more used to this whole choices for which skill you use. Uh, And the key here is really having your guide uh, push back a little bit, not Mm. not to fight with them, but to encourage those players to really, uh, you know, justify narratively the rule. You know, you don't want to you don't want your players saying, well, I've got a six here and a four there, so I'm going to roll the six. No, no. Why? You know, oh, because you're a joker and you think you're you're going to crack the perfect joke and have them fall over laughing while they're trying to swing the heavy sword, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, make sure they're, they're doing that, especially I think with the younger game players uh, and get them into that idea of uh, directing the narrative. And then just as an example, if you want to talk about seeing someone use coerce to defend, just see anything with Spider-Man. There you go. (laughs) That's an example. I will note in the book, uh, Aloy, we haven't gotten to this yet, but there is a chapter I'm playing with kids. He very much pushes the just let them instead say yes. Like right. whatever reason they come up with, I think the pushback's more for old. Well, old, I, and I say well, when I say pushback, it's pushback to make sure they have a reason. They have a reason that isn't this number is higher. Uh, if you want to give me a reason and it's silly, that's fine. It's still a reason, uh, but make sure that there's a reason narratively. Fair enough. 
All right. Uh, there is a full, pretty simple, basic magic system. Um, it's prevented, again, for people who want to do the fantasy thing or maybe have space wizards. Uh, there's a number of... Um, I, I'm not going to get into the details in the magic system. It does also have like a, the equivalent of a bestiary, right? It's a number of enemy extras. This is one of those sections that's broken into the four genres, so you have different ones. Uh, just to know the genres, I meant to mention earlier, I like the choice of spooky instead of horror. Again, for a family-friendly game, that was a nice choice. And there's nothing horrific in here. Like, into the spooky, there is a vampire. There's, like, swarm of spiders, and there's, like, animated dead. Like, there's not a lot here. Uh, one of the more impressive chapters is the game guide tips, which is for the, the games master again. This is obviously written for players who have never run a role-playing game before and is a ton of good advice for stuff you don't always see in role-playing rule books, which should be in there, in my opinion, like setting up your first game, uh, actually managing character creation, customizing characters, how to run your first session, including in a rather short but an example of play actually happening showing which roles were made uh it talks about different types of stories it talks about story beats how you should mix up your story beats to keep the game interesting just lots of general rpg running advice here so and this is always a super important section and one no core rule book should skip uh it is never a bad idea to include a way to help new fresh new players succeed and there's no like anyone who's experienced can always skip it Yep. They just flip back, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know how to run a game. Now, finally, there is a um, section in the back of the book that I thought was pretty interesting. And this is a simplified version of the rules, specifically for introducing it to either brand new players, like like players who have no clue. They've never watched an episode of Critical Role. They don't really know what role-playing is at all, or for kids. Um, and I gotta say, man, here's where I was getting flashbacks to Mermaid Adventures, which is a, a game from Aloy I had played. And actually where this review copy even came from, because I love Mermaid Adventures and it was the first game I ever introduced my kids to. And Aloy wanted me to check out the new version. Well, the new version uses these new rules, which is why I was reading this book. So what they did here is they ditched the 14 skills and they give you four. And that's it. Really simple. And it's, I, I don't have them in front of me, but it's like mind, body, luck, and something. And that's it. And it's just like, if you're doing anything physical, it's body. If you're doing anything mental it's mind if it doesn't matter it's luck and i think there might be a conversation style character you know it's bugging me now i might now i'm <laughs> so and now i see wh how we get to what i was sort of expecting when you said when you said you were reviewing this is i knew that this was for a kid's game yeah. about mermaids um and so far this sounds like a game that for kids could be a lot of boring dice board oh, yeah. building <laughs> but that's it that's that's the thing is this is not this is written to be beginner friendly but it's not a kid system it does have this final chapter in the back of the book though to really simplify it down so in addition only having four attributes instead of skills qualities now are whatever players want them to be and literally off the top of your head because again you're going with kids right like what do you want to have and what it is is if that quality applies you get plus one white die like no more no more that's it that's it there's, there's no other special qualities no special rules no flaming swords if you have a flaming sword you get plus one white die when you can use your flaming sword that's it whereas the build rules in the original game are you can buy a flaming sword this level one two three or four and each level gives it plus one die and then you can get the quality of your level four sword to be flaming which causes the on fire status effect which i again i went into way more detail on the blog but that is a thing you would do in the pip system to build the flaming sword right. whereas in the simplified version it's flaming sword do you, do you use your flaming sword in this fight yep you get plus one white done um 
the other thing too is there is there is some paragraphs about how to play with kids. Uh, again, very much on sticking with imaginative play with some restrictions versus playing a full role playing game. Like it's it's a great introduction to structured play. Now, overall, I, I got to say I was I was very pleased with the overall impression of this book. Like it's a it's a solid soft cover book. I dig the cover. I, it's behind me on the shelf. Where I'd hold it up. It's enticing. Like I see that and I'm like, oh, that's a cool cover. Really real readable layout. Love the large font size with my aging eyes. Uh, thicker than expected paper. I, I, this was kickstarted, so I'm wondering if the like one of the Kickstarter upgrades was a paper upgrade because it just like I kept thinking I was. Missing a page in between because they felt so thick. Uh, lots, full color, lots of diverse and interesting art. Uh, it was a breeze to read. Uh, everything was presented in a logical order. It all made sense. Uh, game mechanics are pretty simple to learn and explain. Now, the math behind them, as Sean said, is probably, if, you, if you're if you one of those people who likes to know your exact odds of succeeding, you're going to have a hard time with this system. But the actual building a dice pool is pretty dang simple. Uh, character creation simple. Uh, it's enough that I don't think you need a dedicated character creation session to sit down and play this game. Like, you, you can, it's less than an hour easily to build characters. If I was going to run this at a con, I would have people build characters at the table. Um, the two-color dice system is elegant. Uh, it's definitely rules light. It's definitely a rulings over rules style game, narrative driven. Uh, the focus is definitely on the narrative and the story and a huge push, like everything in the rule book. Eloy keeps repeating himself saying it's all to have fun. It's all about having fun. It's all about doing interesting, fun, cool things. Right. And for me, I think, you know, I, I, I do hesitate with this kind of a dice pool system. And I think it, the real thing that that would make or break this system for me is really in how the guide applied that system yeah uh the more narrative you are the harsher the the break can be when you need to all of a sudden sit down and assemble okay i need this stat and this uh, quality and this thing over here and this thing over here and okay so this i'm gonna have seven dice and then what's my difficulty gonna be oh it's gonna be five and okay so we're gonna do that and then okay and now i'm gonna move all my dice around to figure out whether it was hits or a final Mm -hmm. hit or miss and that and that's a chunk of time that in a real narrative flow can can make or break if it's happening too often. I mean, if it's a big decisive moment, you want that. You 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 want that interest. But if it's happening, you know, every time somebody fires a gun for a ten minute gunfight, mm-hmm. you're now looking at an hour long gunfight because um, yeah. it can really stretch it out. So that's one of those things where dice pools are can be fantastic if the guide is using them, uh, you know, without. You know, thinking of them the same way you would those opposed D20 rules in a D&D game, which you can do constantly because it takes no time or effort. Yeah, I got to say, this is something I wouldn't know until I sit down and play for one. Now, the game does stress not rolling for um, when you don't have to. Right. Like, it, it really pushes the definitely don't roll if you should just be able to succeed. Um, it notes the characters are competent and should be able to do what they're good at doing yep. without having to roll. So, it is pushed a little bit. Um Mr. Ed and Mark, uh, again, excellent podcast talking about role-playing games, talks about the levels of play. And I'll admit off the top of my head, I don't remember the definitions of their levels, but there is definitely a change of levels when you drop to the mechanic level. And that is going to be a distinct thing. Like there is that time of building your pool. There is yeah. the, but then you still have narration in there because of that BS element, that right. why, how you're building the pool right. and how the you explain to the, the narrative justification, I think kind of keeps 
should at least keep everyone on the table interested versus that hard break of I rolled initiative, let's get the miniatures out right. that you have in some games. So I don't know. I, I Again, having not actually sat down and played it. Well, I did play the previous version, but it was so simple and so quick that it was really easy. Like that was the thing with it with Mermaid Adventures. It was you had four stats and they only went up to five. Right. So it was really simple. It was like body, four, roll, grab four dice. And while you only had two qualities, so does your goldfish pet help or not? Yep. Done. Okay, grab the dice and roll. It was nice and quick. Whereas this, I can definitely see it taking longer to get out. Yeah, and that's and that's really the thing. Like again, the the kid this kids version you've described makes sense, and it totally yeah. glosses that over and makes it a real quick system. But I suppose it's how deep you choose to get mm-hmm. and how you know integrated you you want to get i do like the fact you mentioned there that you know they do assume that the players are competent and that's a big thing in modern narrative games um you have to assume that these are at the very least competent if not skilled individuals Mm -hmm. in their given role who can just do things because they you know they're they're not just the peasant off the street trying to swing a two-handed broadsword you know they are a fighter who can, knows how to use a sword. Correct. Or even a better example in this game, you're a chef who actually knows how to cook. There you go, yeah. To, to move it away from the, the aggressive yeah. combat style <laughs> game. Yep, yeah. no, absolutely. So overall, as a universal system, I was impressed uh, by what this this book had to offer. I, I liked how it presented things from the four different genres. Again, fantasy, modern, sci-fi, and spooky covers a good range. The only thing to me that seems a little missing is maybe Western, but again, that's kind of modern dumbing it down a little bit I'm, I'm not sure what other genres are missing so that 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 was good to see uh it was good to see how the basic mechanics could be tweaked right so that like again talking about the magic being your your jedi powers right your your space wizards um though i did find one thing was missing from the book and that does have to do with the setting and that was any discussion on how to decide what you're going to do with this book Right? Because this is a universal system. You could play anything with this. I would have liked the chapter dedicated to having session zero. Um, possibly even including things like safety tools, which again are not in the book. Um, and deciding what type of game your group wants to play, right? To talk about determining what the players do and don't want to see in the coming game, picking settings that fit what the players want to see and what they don't. Uh, things like cats we've talked about on the show before. Again, I don't know if that that might have came out after this, the particular cats thing. But the uh, again, to quote Phil Vecchio, getting enthusiastic consent before you play. I think a chapter on that with the amount of talk there was on DM tools and having your first session and getting people to the table and picking characters and making characters that work together. It would have been nice to talk about the, the various settings you could play in. Like, how do you pick between fantasy, modern, sci-fi and spooky? And how do you get everyone on the same page? Right. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting omission. Uh, and I do actually really question the, the lack of safety uh, tools in there, or, or at least some mention to go out and find safety tools. But it's possible this was written long before uh, Jason came up with the X card. I don't know. Possibly. But um, I, I wonder how many people would actually have the PIP core book without already having something in mind. True. Uh, either from one of those settings built into the book or picking up one of the many other PIP system books for that. I mean, between beside Mermaid Adventures and, and others. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'll admit, the only reason I got this was to check out the new version of Mermaid Adventures. Right. I don't know if people buy generic role-playing systems with that in mind or if they just buy them to check them out. I honestly don't know. And honestly, I, I think your kids might actually even enjoy Infestation. Uh, welcome to this house, the grossest, dirtiest, bestest place for bugs like us. Oh, there you go. So, 
Uh, All right, where was I? I lost something here. So overall, I, I was pretty impressed by the PIP system source book. It's it's an excellent rules light generic system. Um, used to run and play a number of different genre types, different settings, different systems. Uh, the basic mechanics of a two color D six dice pool. One color being good, one color being bad. It's pretty simple. I said my kids were able to pick it up with smaller dice pools, but the basic concept was easy enough to them. Especially that the 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 good versus bad, the the good versus evil is is a very clear message to children. Like children just grasp that, right? These are the good ones. These are the bad ones. Um, I think it's a great introductory role playing game for anyone new to RPGs. Like I I. If I had to introduce RPGs to someone, this might be a system I'd, I'd choose, especially over one of the more crunchier systems that are out there. And I think it's a great game for children. Now, in addition to the rules light variant there, makes it great for younger kids, like, like toddlers, right? Like little kids. And I think this is a great way to introduce structured play, something that's a little more involved than just let's pretend, right? So that there's rules and consequences and constraints to that play. And that is something like I've, done this firsthand with the original printing of Mermaid Adventures with my kids, and they took to it right away to the fact that they now have role-playing rules they make up for their Playmobile, because otherwise they argue over who gets to do what. They'll go grab dice and start rolling dice pools to see who won the battle instead of arguing back and forth, which is awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this the, the rules light version, the children's version in the back of the book, is a fantastic way to get people in. Um, I'm a little less sold on on the opposed dice rule system they've got again and that's a lot of it for the beginner guide more than the beginner mm -hmm. players because again i just there, there's a real potential to bog down the narrative with if you're if you're if you're overusing the mechanic yeah. uh and that's something that's hard to teach to a new guide yeah i think the game did a pretty good job of pointing it out but again Excellent. with that yep. i i again, can't, you haven't played it so i haven't played it plus i'm not a new guide right I, I yeah no, many games so yep. it, it's hard you can't i can't really put myself in the mindset of someone who's never run a role-playing game before what it'd be nice to see is i would love to see a review of this from someone who's never played a role-playing game before if that's out there that would be yep. interesting to see so i say if you are thinking of getting your kids or someone else's kids into role-playing games i Check this out. Like, look up the Pipsosin Core book. I'm sure it's dirt cheap on Drive Through RPG in PDF. They, they these books usually are. Happens to be on sale on Amazon today, which was totally coincidental. I shared a deal on it today. Um, the other people who I think might want to look at this are educators. If you are thinking of bringing RPGs to the classroom, this might be a, a good book to do it with, especially being generic, because a lot of the role-playing games that are out there geared at educators and geared at kids are very much that Dungeons & Dragons, that, that fantasy go beat up the monsters and steal the loot style of game, whereas this being multi-genre could let you tell stories of insects or mermaids or space dolphins. Um for someone who's curious about role-playing, like if there's anyone who happens to listen to the show that listens to us for our board gaming content and are curious about uh, role-playing games and are intimidated by the big games, like say Dungeons & Dragons or crunchy games like Shadowrun, that not only have a large investment cost-wise, but also in learning-wise, in, in uh, time investment learning to play, this would be a great place to dip your feet into the hobby. Now, I say, for more experienced role-players out there, this is going to be on you. Um... If this sounds like something your group would dig, if you're looking for a rules light system you can play anything with, uh, this may be your new jam. Absolutely. For a more in-depth look at the PIP System Core Book, you can head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Reviews.
And now, the Bellhops Tabletop, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last here, what games hit our tables. Every week, we like to take a look back at any games we played, any events we attended, and other cool gaming stuff that's going on. So, for me going on, uh, we actually had two game nights this past week, which was pretty awesome. Uh, one night, just Deanna and I, and another one with Deanna's mom and sister. Uh, starting off with the two-player date night games, uh, we had another charcuterie night, some uh, some craft beers, and we broke out Roll for Lasers for the first time. Now, I want to I wanna push this one a bit because I don't know if I'm behind on it or they didn't give me a big time frame, but this is currently on Kickstarter. So if this sounds at all cool to you, you might want to check this out. Uh, as soon as you listen to the show, it, last time I looked, it had, I think, 14 days left. And so by the time this podcast comes out, that's going to be even shorter. But there should still be time to check it out. Um, so if this sounds at all interesting, check it out. Now, this one I signed up to review because of a love of an old PC game called Laser Chess. And... Man, I love that game. I think it was actually an Amiga I used to play it. My dad's Amiga. Uh, and this was chess pieces, but you could fire lasers, and the goal was to hit the opponent's king with your laser to win. Now, in this, you're still using lasers and mirrors, but you're trying to hit targets to score points. So, yeah, it's a great little concept for a roll and write. Um, it's all 2D and straight lines. just makes a lot of sense for the idea. No, I agree. And like Sean said, the name implies that roll for lasers it is a roll and write which are hot this year for whatever reason. Uh, the game board is a 12 by 12 grid, and pretty much that's it. Um, there is some art on it. None of that actually matters. Uh, each player starts in one corner of this grid. They roll 66 and then pair them up, and those pairs are coordinates. So what coordinates you get to draw on the map, and you're going to draw a target in three different coordinates, up to three targets. Um, once you've done that, you pass the board to the next player, who's going to draw three targets, and the next player, they draw three targets, and the next player, draw three targets, up to four players. If you're playing two, you just pass back and forth until everyone's drawn their targets. Then you go around again, and again, you're going to roll 3d6, but instead of placing targets, you are now placing mirrors. Now, the mirrors are just, again, it's a grid, so you're just drawing a line across it, and these reflect layer, lasers 90 degrees, like pretty much what you expect the mirror to do uh again you're going to do three you're going to pass the next player, and they're going to place three place three place three and it gets back to you the start player now you're going to fire your lasers again you're rolling the same 3d or 66 but this time you're going to add them up or use single dice so like you could use one or you could go all the way up to 12 and shoot at the very top of the board now all these coordinates are from your corner so if you're counting five you're counting five from your corner and or if like a five and a three it'd be three from your corner when you fire, you're going to trace lasers with your hand. Don't draw them because that would just be a mess. You just trace them with your finger and the laser goes out. And if it hits a mirror, it turns nine degrees and you're going to count how many targets you hit and get that many points. It sounds really simple. And in the first round, it is. Yes, it is. Now, after everyone's fired their lasers, you're now going to rotate the board 90 degrees and do it all again, but starting in a new corner. Now, what's important to note, and what I totally missed when I saw another review of this game, is that all the targets and mirrors are just there for everyone. You are not placing your targets in your mirrors. You're just putting out targets and mirrors, and they apply and interact with everyone at the table. Yeah, and this is where the complexity ratchets up fast. The interactions. Now, there is a bit more to go with it. There are some special actions and ways you can get rerolls in that, but I'm going to save that for the full review because this is just our first play impressions. What I will say here is this is neat. This is a neat game. It's quite fun. Way more thinky than I thought it was going to be when I'm just like, hey, draw razors. No, there's, there's, there's enough thinking here that downtime and AP can become a problem, especially when you get to that third, fourth round where the board's got all kinds of stuff on it. 
Now, as for the Kickstarter, again, this is currently live on Kickstarter. I don't know. This is an odd one. Like, I, I don't know if we did, we did, we've done a Kickstarter review episode. This would have been one I would like, would have liked to have had a long discussion on because this, like, basically they're selling people a laminated sheet of paper, a dry erase marker, and 66, and that's it. Now, I guess it only costs two bucks plus shipping. So I guess, but like, to me, this just seems like something that should be on GameCraft or not on Kickstarter. Now, they do offer a deluxe board version, but there's no pictures of that, so I can't really rate that. I will say, though, the game's fun. Like, it's it's surprisingly fun. Uh, they have already funded. And really, to check it out, for a buck, you can get the print and play. And to be honest, I'm actually thinking of getting the print and play, and instead of using the dry erase, just printing off a sheet when I feel like playing. And I just print, and we could use a pencil instead of a dry erase. Like, I can just print, want to play some roll for layers? Let me print off six sheets, right? Like, it seems pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the $10 deal just seems kind of odd. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's got dice, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it gets, yeah, I, yeah, it's odd. I don't know. Like, to me, this seems like this could be the next black box. If it was yeah. all plastic components and I was putting out actual mirrors and stuff like that, right? Like, yeah. that just seems really, that could be awesome, but they're not doing that. Like that might be a Kickstarter Deluxe Third Edition or something down the line, yeah. And I don't know. I, I it just seems a little premature to have this on Kickstarter, but it funded. So who am I to say, right? Yep. But then they're only looking for three hundred bucks. So of course it funded. Like I don't know. I, it's it's an interesting one. This is one that I think the people at Kickstarter are probably scratching their heads. And we will have more to say about it in a coming episode. All right. Up next, Breakdancing Meeple. Uh, this one came in a review copy from Atlas Games, something that I just, as soon as I saw the concept, they said the game Breakdancing Meeple, and I went, I know what this game's about. I am going to roll Meeple-like dice, and I'm going to try to get certain patterns. And sure enough, yep, that's exactly what it is. And I'm like, cool, that's what I expected. But there's actually a little more to it than that. Because you start off the game with two set moves, and they're dependent on which color you play, but all that actually matters is the name. The game's not isometric, which is one fault of the game. The game totally should have had every every team should have had different starting moves. But enough about that. You have two moves you're trying to do. You are literally rolling meeple. You have one minute to try to match them up as much as possible. So as soon as you get your meeple in the same spot, uh, so they match your card. Each card needs two meeple. There'll be one on its head, one on its side, one standing, and another one on its side. And if you roll your meeple and they're on their head, you get to put it on the card. You put the second one on the card, you take them off, and you score points. You mark with cubes. Once the, the There's three spots on each one, so the first time you match is worth one point. The second time you match is worth two. The third time, now that you're getting repetitive, it's only worth one. And that's pretty much it. And what's amusing is that the meeple lay on their back. They're lazy. They're just sitting down. You don't get any points from them. You can't use them, which I thought was an amusing concept. So only your your, your lazy meeple can't be used. Um there's more to it than that, though, because once you finish that first round, you then draft um, in these cards, and they are new routines, and you put up one more than the number of players. So you're playing two player, you put up three new routines, the player in last gets the first pick. Now, these routines are more complicated. They're going to require more meeple or meeple in more positions and be worth more points. Now, you can only have three routines. So once you get to round two, it's pretty simple. Everyone's just going to get a new routine. And they'll have more options on how to place their meeple. But once you get to round four, or sorry, round three, you now are drafting and you can only have three routines ever. So now you get the choice of, do I add another complicated one? And do I get one of my, my basic moves that are easy to do, but they're worth not as many points? So there's like actual 
like more to it, right, than I expected. I thought it was just going to be dead simple. I'm like, no, there's this drafting mechanic where, like, you might have noticed when you roll Meeple, you never roll them on your side. So you're like, no, I'm getting rid of my thing where I have to place them on the side and grabbing this one that where I always roll them on their heads. And then there's this other thing, and I can't remember what they're called. I'll look it up for the full review, but there's these enhancements, I'll call them. And they're things you can get to modify your existing routines. Now, you have to pay a point to take them. Because these are really good. And they'll have things on them like, if you complete this move three times, you get four bonus points. Or if you complete all your routines at least once, you get two bonus points. And there are these little modifiers. And then there's also a routine that lets you trade in two meeple in one position for any other. But that's it. It's not worth any points. So it takes up one of your routine slots, but then makes it easier to complete other one. Like, all of this just means it's not just this quick game of dropping meeple trying to match patterns. Like, there's more to it, which I was impressed by. Now, you only play four rounds. They take a minute each. Now, the box says five minutes. I got to say it's closer to ten just because you have to add in scoring, shuffling cards, and stuff like that. Now, the one thing I do recommend with this is there is an app. Um, The main reason you probably want this app is it does the one-minute counter. Uh, It throws some nice, you know... A beatbox going on in the background plus it tracks all your score you just put which colors are playing and then at the end of every round it tells you what score and it even puts it in order to know who drafts first so that's something i think really helps the game otherwise though anyone with a one minute timer you could play it without right well it's interesting to hear it's not just a silly fluff game which is kind of what you expect when you see yeah. the, the cute little tin yeah, I guess like I said, I was impressed by by the amount of depth that was added just by drafting new maneuvers or new routines. Right. Up next is our next play of Batman Super Villains Edition. Uh, this time I played Scarecrow. Deanna played Rachel Ghoul. Uh, Deanna is, I think, undefeated at this game. The most notable thing here, and this is for anyone who's ever played any version of Talisman before, is we were done in about an hour. Like it was like like Deanna just kept getting I'm gonna cunning, and was able to steamroll cunning and just rush to the middle. And like, we finished a game of talisman in an hour, like without cheating. Like we didn't do anything to speed it up. So like, that's great. Like, like one hour to play a game of talisman. That's awesome. Yeah. But we first, this is our second time playing the game. First time we played, we were really disappointed by the third floor, the, the tower as it's called and the deck for the third floor, because in this version of talisman, there were three different encounter decks, one for each region. And I have no idea if this is in any of the modern versions, but it definitely wasn't in my 1980s version of talisman. So this is something new to the game and it makes sense for the one and two deck because things progress. They're tougher. There's more interesting things, things that do more damage to your characters, harder fights in the two region than the one. And then it should scale up so that the three in the tower are like the most badass tough things in the game. Now, in the original game, that middle section is all just board elements. You don't draw any cards. And they're all horrible. There's like dice with death where you roll 3d6, your opponent rolls 3d6. Whoever rolls higher, if your opponent rolls higher, you lose life. And you keep rolling until you get past death or you die. That is literally a spot on the original talisman. There's nothing like that here. Instead, you're drawing from the three encounter deck that has an escaped inmate with a strength of two. Um, the, the, the silliest one is there's an EMT. The EMT card reads, bring this card to the the infirmary to automatically heal two points or trade this card in at the infirmary to get three gold. You're getting this in the tower. The infirmary is in region two. Mm. There is no reason whatsoever to put this card in the three deck. Like absolutely none. 
In addition to that, there is a card, and it's one of the most powerful cards in the game, that rewards a character with chaotic alignment for landing on it. You basically get one of anything. You can have a fate point, you can have a gold, you can have a health, you can have a, a strength, you can have a cunning. You get whatever you want. That's in the three region. The equivalent for the lawful, or whatever it is, I can't remember what the, they're both evil. It's chaotic evil or something else evil. Whatever the other evil is, is in the one region. And the characters are split 50-50, what alignment they are. Right. So why righteous evil? So you have righteous evil and chaotic evil. Why is the chaotic evil players rewarded in the tower, whereas the other players are rewarded on the outside? Like, those are just some examples. Right. Not a single card in that three deck makes sense why it's there. And I don't get it. Like, I, I don't... How did they mess this up? Like, is it a misprint? Did they... they did the decks wrong? Like, it got to the point where I'm like, maybe the three decks supposed to be the, supposed to be the outer region. But it doesn't make sense because it only has like twenty cards, whereas the other one has like fifty. Right. Like I, I don't get it. It's 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 broken. Like the third floor deck is literally broken in this game. Weird. That's a shame to hear that uh, it's gone that way. And I say, if you look online, we're not the only people who have pointed this out because right. I was trying to Google it to see if there's like right. a correction. Yeah. I am tempted to sleeve my cards. I hate sleeving cards, but just so I can black back them and make my own three deck. It's, it's unique to my game to make it more balanced. Right. Hmm. All right. Next, two-player. Patchwork. Uh, Uwe Rosenberg, fantastic two-player game. was in the, the Lookout Spiel two-player line. Uh, I assume you can still get this one. If you don't, if you play two-player games and don't have this, just go buy it. This is as good as it ever was. Um, I love Patchwork. Always have. My only complaint about Patchwork is you can't play it at the second cup. You can't play it at a coffee shop because to play the game, you have to put a ring of polyominoes around the main board and the polyominoes are kind of huge and it takes up way more room than it really needs to. That's that's my complaint about Patchwork. But assuming you have a big enough table, just great game. Uh, we played a couple games in a row and my second game, man, I did awesome. I had my highest score ever. I actually did the 7x7. Seven seven. I, I didn't fill my full board, but I got the 7x7 seven seven bonus. I had like like, this is a game where the first couple times you play, you usually have negative points. So I, I was pleased to play Patchwork that well. Yeah. So, yeah, just get Patchwork. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I've dabbled with the digital version, and we need to add it, I guess, to the Play With Sean Sometime pile next time I'm yeah. done. We'll have to throw that in uh, the two-player. That one's great. Uh, we finished off that night with Codenames Duet. That was probably a mistake. I don't know. We just weren't on our game. Uh, like, we won once, but it was on easy mode, right? Like, we used the extra tokens. I'm glad we didn't grab the, the map out and try to play our campaign because we were just not making connections. Well, you know, sometimes brainwaves don't line up. Nope. And, and again, that game, it's no fault of the game. That was just a, yep. we were tired or whatever. So on to the extended family game night. Uh, started off with Telestrations Upside Drawn. Um we just talked about that in the review, so I don't want to a lot of, get into a lot of detail here. But what I will say is our first experiences with Telestration Upside Drama with my kids. And I got to say that this went much better playing with adults. Now, I didn't mention playing with the kids in the review because the box and Board Game Geek both say age 12 up, 12 plus, um, which well, one of my kids is that age. The other one is not. And the problem we are having with the kids is they don't have the life experiences to understand the clues. Like they wouldn't know like opera. My kids probably know kind of what an opera is, but wouldn't know what to draw draw to represent one even more so were the phrases like my kids just don't know popular phrases like the grass is greener on the other side because no one's ever said it around them so we're having a real hard time with them coming up with clues that they could actually understand and when we play with my kids it was basically um myself and big g 
looking at a card going, which of these do you think little G would actually understand? And then having to use that instead of the die. So again, I threw that out of the review because the game's not designed for playing with little kids. So fair enough. And not that it's an adult game either, which they'll probably put out a version because there is an adult version of Telestrations out there after dark. But with adults, man, no, fun, laughing, uh, way more fun than I thought it would be. Um, Dee's mom and sister both really enjoyed it. Um, it was a good example of the drawing skill ability, not mattering much, man. Like we got better at it. So this was the other thing when we played with the kids, we had rounds where we just had to give up where just no one got the clue. Right. This was not that like everyone, one of the teams got all, one of the clues in a reasonable amount of time every time with some of them happening so quickly and so ridiculously with like a scribble drawn on the board and someone happened to get it, right? But part of that's the clue system, right? Like if you happen to say the right thing at the beginning, the game almost becomes more 20 questions than actual drawing ability, right? right? So if someone happens to say you're drawing a head and they say hot and you're like mouth and they're like hot, hot, you're like bite, right? So even though what's on the board might be scribbly, you get that that leading towards a clue that way. So uh, thumbs up for Telestrations Upside Drown. Uh, my opinion overall hasn't changed. I still think the original is a better big group game, but there is reason to own both. All right. And finally, more Batman. Um, this is the main one we wanted to play because Deanna's sister, Holly, um, who happens to be in our chat room tonight, is a comic book fan, a Batman fan, and I thought she'd really dig it, uh, especially knowing the characters. Uh, this is our first four-player game. We had Duella Dent, uh, Harley Quinn, Joker, and Mr. Freeze this time. Right off the bat, the game is way better with more people. There's just than two. There's just more interaction, right? There's more chance you'll land on the same spares and be able to beat each other up and steal equipment. Uh, just a, a trademark of Talisman is you get um, location and strangers. When they're drawn, stay on the board. While with more people, more of those end up out. So there's more permanent things on the board. So it reduces some of the randomness of the game and gives you more goals like, oh, I want to go see that person, so I have a reason to head somewhere. Um, the other thing is with this version of the game, if you roll a one, Batman moves. While with more people... Batman uh, ones get rolled more often. So Batman is more involved in the game. Right. So that was another big part of it. Um, surprisingly, Deanna's mom really liked it. Like she actually called today, two days later to ask if we could play again this week. So like, she's like, Oh, I really like that game, <laughs> which was surprising. Cause she's the one that I think of who likes like Catan and ticket to ride and strategy games. Right. Whereas talisman is very much an experience game it's a it's a story game it's you are playing to have an experience and see what happens you are playing to find out what happens to use the the powered by the apocalypse term as instead of playing to pull play out a strategy right uh holly did dig it as much as well uh not as much as i expected but she had one of those games where she just couldn't catch a break and that's something that happens in talisman uh by the time brenda and deanna were rushing to the end she was still like so far away from rushing to the end that she just felt out of the race, out of the game. And you know what? That's a talisman thing. That, that's part of any of these games with random decks of encounters and the person who gets lucky and draws all the gold and gets to the shop to buy the equipment earlier tends to have an advantage. Yep. Now, again, four players, like two hours for talisman, which is crazy. And that's where I don't think it's a problem that there was that runaway leader thing. Cause it was really only the last four turns where, uh, Deanna and Brenda were racing for the end where, you know, the other two of us kind of felt like we weren't in the game. But you know what? It's four turns of that. Not like half the game. It felt right. like we were behind the eight ball. Awesome. All right. Well, how about a look ahead? What do you have planned for the coming week? All right. So 
we did sit down this week and plan out our review schedule for the rest of the month. So most of my gaming is going to be based on that. Um, Monday night, I am planning on hosting a game of Runaway Hirelings for some of our patrons. We'll see how that's going to go. What I did find that's awesome is Thomas on his website had a couple actual plays. And I think that's going to really help me nail down how the different parts of this okay. system interact. So I plan on listening to a couple of those. Um where I'm going to be reading Mermaid Adventures next, so this is going to be the next RPG review. Now that I've read the PIP System Core book, I'm going to see what Aloy has done and changed in this version, the revised edition of Mermaid Adventures versus the original. Uh, so that's another one. I want to get this read. And then, well, another big one for, for fans of the show is Friday, Deanna and I are going to crack open Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. So that was kindly provided by Tabletop Renaissance. We're going to be giving that a shot during a live stream. So back to our old schedule, Friday nights, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. We're going to do it at least this Friday. I don't know if this will be an every Friday thing, but we'll see. It might be. Um, what I did learn, this is something that surprised me since I did the unboxing, is there are only 25 scenarios in Jaws of the Lion. Mm. So when you compare that to the number in Gloomhaven, that is a much shorter campaign. And I have to assume you're not necessarily going to do all 25. I would hope there's some branching past decisions there. Maybe you can go back and do them, but I, it's definitely going to be a shorter experience. So we'll see. That that might be something we, we do every Friday, maybe every other Friday. We'll see. Right, and that'll be at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on Friday. Now, a quick shout-out and a thank you to our VIP guests, our Patreon backers. We greatly appreciate their support. William Fisher, thank you. Danielle Thomas, thank you. Sean P. Kelly, didn't make it to the chat tonight, but thank you. Andrew Dacey, thank you. Diane Tuzano, thanks, Ma. Misdirected Mark, like we haven't mentioned them enough already tonight, but join the Misdirected Mark team every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern as they talk games and game mastering at twitch.tv slash misdirectedmark. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to lock those front doors. Though the doors to the lobby are closed and the portcullis is crashing down, <laughs> you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Drop by our website at tabletopbellhop.com for more gaming content. If you dig what you heard here tonight, uh, consider heading over to patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop and tipping your bellhops. Uh, remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast to hit your podcatchers and YouTube at 2 a.m. Eastern every Tuesday. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us and be sure to stick around and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show. For Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game, game on. on. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution License. <laughs>